Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome back to Scraps and Scrolls. This is a Dance with Dragons part three already. Yes, we're already there. I am Sir Buckley. I'm talking to you from, of course, the Isle slash England. It's still quite sunny outside, a bit cold this morning, very dark when I had to get up, but nice and sunny now. So that's good. Pretty, pretty good October so far. Please allow me to say hello and welcome. Always good to have fellow green folk aboard the aisle. Come and grab a log, come and sit down. We'll do some chatting, we'll do some scrapping and scrolling. Before we get to that, of course, just thank you for being here in the first place. The downloads were still going very high and very, very good numbers since we started Dance Dragons, so that's excellent. Thank you to those who comment and share and tweet and like and all those wonderful things. And especially while we're here, let me give a very, very special thank you to our wonderful patrons. Let me start with KM, Lord Commander, Naaman Darklin, and of course, Archmaster June, healer of the lesser boxes. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all. We've also had some new signees this week, so that's always wonderful. Welcome to the Isle. Hope you enjoy the old stuff and the new stuff. Like I say, lots going on on the Isle at the moment. Like I mentioned last week, there's some special stuff going up on Patreon right now. You can you can find a bit of my own writing if you fancy. That's up there now, Charlie's Choice. You can go and have a look. We've got some new goals coming up. We've got some new benefits and a little bit of chit-chat as well. So if you would like to join us, become part of the Isle of Faces community, you know where to find us over on Patreon. We'd love to have you. And to that end, before we get going here, Let's open up the discussion a little bit because, as you might know, I love comics. I'm especially in a very deep dive on comics at the moment. I can't get them out of my mind. I'm trying to read them any minute of the day I can find, which unfortunately isn't a lot, but I do find time every now and then. I bring this up because one of our very own patrons, Lord Commander Namian Darkland, by complete coincidence, messaged me on Patreon earlier this week talking about his love of comics and which ones he likes how we can connect them to george etc and his previous love of superheroes stuff like that it was a cool conversation always like interacting with listeners and patrons so that was cool so let's just open the floor a bit why don't you get in touch tell us what comics you're reading or read when you were younger which lines or runs you love because comics they're damn cool they're brilliant i love them i explained once to the guys on the brotherhood without manners podcast and many moons ago now that i really struggled to read until my mother got me into comics back then it was the Bino and the dandy and yeah I probably wouldn't have been able to read and certainly do any this podcast with you guys without that influence then I got into Marvel and stuff like that and well fast forward to today what I'm really into today I've been doing 90s Batman reread for well for a few years now but I'm back into it we're into the 2000s I've just reached Hush I'm doing the same with Marvel got to go past House of M Decimation I'm also currently reading Ex Machina by Brian K. Fawn so that's what I'm reading right now but I must say my all-time favorites are probably Batman Cataclysm and Batman No Man's Land and also by Brian K. Vaughan, Why the Last Man. That just blows my socks off that series. It's probably the best comic I've ever read. So that's me. Let me know what you're reading or have read in the past. Because, yeah, again, comics are cool. For our Lord Commander, he was talking a lot about Jonathan Hickman, who's doing a lot of very important stuff for Marvel at the moment. He was comparing him to George R. R. Martin's writing style, so that's cool. So that's the open floor on the Art of Faces this week. That's the discussion point. I'll put a post up on Patreon, so our wonderful patrons can discuss. But all of you out there, feel free to comment or email or tweet me at about your comics your favorite characters and we'll get chatting a bit it's always good to talk to you guys along those notes of just doing something extra last thing before we get going here last week you might have seen tweeted out before the actual episode came out which chapters we were covering on that episode of course and then asked can you guess which of those chapters will be the longest in terms of airtime which we're going to spend the most focus on during the episode so i think we'll do that going forward each week i'll tweet out what chapters we've got you guess which one's going to have the most minutes on each scraps and scrolls either faces podcast we'll make a little leaderboard we'll see which among you can get the most right over these 19 episodes for example last week we had two winners it was and please forgive me for mispronunciations 
at Petri Shawfell and at Allendor F. They both guessed correctly. It was Quentin who was getting the most airtime last week. So by the time you listen to this, I obviously would have already tweeted out this week's. So if you haven't had a go for this week, make sure you do next time. And yeah, we'll make a little leaderboard. See who's doing what. Okay, that's enough preamble, I think. We've got our four chapters. Everyone's got a comfy seat, I'm hoping, on the aisle, ready for some listening. I've got a TV program on mute in the background. If you're interested, it's The Office, season nine, Roy's Wedding. Yeah, let me know what you watch while you listen to this. And we'll get going. So what are we talking about today? We've got another four chapters for you, and it's our first double up. We've got someone twice, and it is, in fact, the beginning and ending. We've got a John bookends today. Yes, we'll begin with John 2 where we introduce this idea of kill the boy, that's going to be a very heavy talking point, and we unfortunately have to say goodbye to Sam, because this is our crossover episode, this is the one we've kind of seen before, in Sam on a Feast. Then we'll go all the way to Essos, with Tyrion Free, who's still leading the way in terms of total chapters here, and we have some very, very important meetings to make in that chapter, some very, very important meetings, let me get that clear, as well as a goodbye to Illyro, we're not going to miss you, see you later. But from there, things take a big, big upswing, because he's back, our favourite, we have Davos 1 today. He is our lone new guy, our new POV. We haven't seen him for a long time, so we're looking forward to that. And we will finish again with John 3, where Melisandre sets a rather important fire, and John, unfortunately, gets rather gloomy about his future prospects. It does end on a bit of a sour note this time round, I must admit. So, let's get going, shall we? Let's begin with John 2. Here we go, it's our long-awaited crossover episode, our crossover chap. This is where we get something completely unique, as far as I remember, within A Song of Ice and Fire, an event literally being replayed for us via a different POV. We knew it was coming ever since the beginning of Feast and Sam 1, and we figured this is going to be the one and only time we actually see it, so we should appreciate it for what it is. And George doesn't waste the opportunity. This isn't an exact replay that brings nothing to it and is mere happenstance. We get to see the other side of a very, very tough conversation. A controversial conversation in World, and one that was focused on a lot in Feast by Sam as his old friend Jon Snow became Lord Snow, just like Alice of Fawn foretold and him actually becoming a little bit of a bad guy in Sam's eyes. For first-time readers, we generally did have to wonder about it and ask those same questions about John's intentions and why this seemingly horrible thing was happening. Now we get to see beneath the surface, we get to see why John does it, how hard it was for him as well. And though, of course, we feel sorry for John for having to do this, the majority of our sorrow goes again to Gilly, who we unfortunately have to see even more upset this time round. This chapter, like many, comes in the three-act structure each of them absolutely critical to the man that John will become. He begins with making himself say horrible things to Gilly because in the long run, that is what will save lives. Not what people think of him, not by earning smiles, but saving lives. It's a great comparison to what he's going to do overall in this book and what will eventually earn him a knife. Second comes Eamon's famous advice that pops up in Sam's conversation, to kill the boy, advice that will wind up having major implications on several lives. One is to come very soon, but on top of the decision on Sam and Gilly, it also means we get Ed sent away, and Gren as well. Now I love Eamon to pieces, but the fact he's the cause of Gren being taken away, when Gren is one of the most awesome characters in the entire series, is very serious stuff indeed. I need a word with Eamon. This advice is going to stick with John in many, many ways, but in fairness, he was already along this path, of leaving his former self behind to properly give his attention to his new role. This is just more of a push of how far he has to go, and how brutal he has to be with everyone as well as himself. And in fairness, some have questioned how good this advice actually was. Again, we love Eamon, but yeah, sending all your friends away? Well, it sure looks like a bad decision when you get the hindsight of the end of the book. Now, I think we'll continue with that line of thinking as we go throughout the book. We'll try and 
come up and analyse how good of advice that was or how John took it, but we'll save it for later. And finally, at the end of the chapter, we finish with Janos Slint's own end, which, well, let's just admit it now, we all love. Yes, George, thank you very much. Okay, we've read Feast, we know who Stoneheart is, we're well aware of Aya's arc, but we just can't help enjoying it. We hate this guy, he's the worst, the absolute worst. So yes, vengeance bad, etc, etc, but heck, we're human. We want the vengeance sometimes, and George finally lets us have a taste. This is the man who was incredibly corrupt, who had no problem with killing children, who tried his best to frame John and have him murdered, who was huge in the betrayal and death of Eddard Stark, and worst of all, has the most annoying, most pompous way of talking of anyone in the series. You're damn right we want him dead. I'll try and contain my enthusiasm for when we actually get there, but it might seep through. And it's the fact that John, the son of Eddard Stark, is the one to do it, and via the exact way that Eddard Stark would do it, for these breaking of oaths and honour, but don't say George never gives us anything, because this is a big one, this is a nice big gift. And it's also a pretty big plus for John's new rule. Sure, it angers some people, but they didn't like him before anyway. For others, it shows John is not messing around. He's not just playing the part, he really is Lord Commander now, and his word is law. You do the crime, you pay for it. And you know who really likes that kind of thinking? Stannis the Menace. And seeing as his negotiations with King Stannis didn't go brilliantly last time and John won, this will go a long way to getting them all on the same page. Now that's a very brief overview, we're going to be revisiting all those themes as we break through this long long chapter, so let's get to it. John 2 sets its initial tension in the same way we got in early John 1. There is some task to be done, some agreement to be made, likely political in nature, that is likely going to be ill-received. This time round it is a letter John does not think he can, in good conscience, sign his name to. It is very reminiscent of John 1's problem of not being able to agree to Stannis' deal, except John seems much more agitated about this than the first. This time it's a letter that's bothering him, which is a nice connection to the end of his arc, considering what the pink letter does to him, and John's inner thoughts immediately betray this is another episode of Wolf vs Crow in John's soul. He does not want to sign this letter, but feels he must, specifically because he is Lord Commander. So what could the Watch want that John doesn't personally? The answer is almost certain to be something to do with House Stark and or Winterfell, and we'll find out in a moment we are quite correct. As discussed in John 1 and the Prepper episode, this is one of the most constant arcs for Dance John. We've already compared it plenty of times with Danny as well. We'll see the battle waged throughout the book. I would do this if I were Stark, but I'm not. I'm a crow, so I can't. It's the duty he signed up for, twice basically, and it's all the heavier now because of his new position. It's a revisit to those days of yore, when he tried to run away and join Rob for the war but was brought back by his friends. It's a revisit to his decision at the end of Storm not to take Winterfell, and it's going to keep popping up, especially once Melisandre whispers the word sister in his ear. We rereaders know it's also the build-up that will seal his fate. Jon will relent here on this issue, and on the next, and the next, although he does try to bend the rules a little bit regarding Aya, almost as if he has to constantly be wearing his own floppy ears, until it's one time too many, and he chooses to completely go against what he decides here and now. This is why this is so key to have early on. John will decide, wholeheartedly, he is full watch now, and cannot emotionally invest in the history or future of House Stark. After a book of difficult rule, bleak futures, constant questioning, and most importantly, the actual reappearance of that family, he'll eventually decide the opposite. But we only know that as rereaders. For the first timer, we are left to wonder what this letter is, given that we only have a scant two paragraphs on it before we're moving on. Now in fairness, maybe you've got a good memory, you remember Sam 1 and you do remember what this letter is, but let's act like you don't. John gives us a little bit of a hint anyway, when he reminds himself the Night's Watch takes no part. Although based on what happened in John 1, 
We'd be forgiven for thinking it's something that Stannis might have requested for his own war, because it normally is. Either way, we're putting that aside and switching to something where we do know the outcome. We very clearly remember the outcome because it's huge. The conversation with Gilly. Even if we have no idea just how it's actually going to play out, we didn't see that in Feast. Only the aftermath. Certainly, it's something we want to see. Well, kind of. We know it's going to be rough, but we do want to see it. Eamon gave us the reasoning in Feast, and it will make sense, but we definitely want to see how Jon dealt with it and how he felt about doing such a thing. Some of the answers we find may surprise us. Jon dreads it, and so might we. Now, this whole thing has to be done tactically. Jon knows there are lives at stakes, so nothing can be overlooked. And I like the early details we get of this. Him asking if the babes are well so that Gilly establishes early he has their care at heart. He's remembering to use the word tell instead of ask because there is no wiggle room on this. Again, it is lives at risk here. The lives of babies and dearest Damon, of course. We've already had plenty of child death in this young book. We're only a few chapters in, so thank you very much. We want to lessen that as much as possible. If John has to go against his nature and play on his authority a bit, if he has to be disliked or even hated to save some children, he'll damn well do it, which is very much the point of this conversation and this chapter. Gilly misunderstands at first, as you would. She thinks this is going to be about Mance. Why else would you talk to a wildling, I suppose? She's only slightly early. His burning is going to come in just three chapters' time in John 3, so stay tuned for that. But it's interesting to see how invested she is in Mance's fate, despite she's probably never met him. Perhaps it's a sign of the quick friendship she's made with Val, or maybe she just buys into the concept of what Mance was trying to do, as Egret did. Then, on top of that misunderstanding, she has another one when John brings up Mance's son and thinks John means to hurt or punish him in Mance's place. That's a painful enough thing for John, even before we get to the truth, which, even though we know it's coming, still comes heavy as lead. Let me read it to you here. Don't let her burn him. Save him, please, Gilly said. Only you can do that, Gilly. John told her how. There it is. Heavy, horrible, short but effective. We don't need it in detail because we already know. And John lists all the ways another woman, a wildling woman especially, might react to the such news with shrieks and curses and scratches. I think he lists those because he probably would have preferred them to the petrified begging Gilly does instead. And already we see John having to kill the boy. He can't comfort Gilly here. He can't offer kind words or try to bring them to an agreement by being nice about it. He has to be stern and hard and cold, as cold as the old kings of Winterfell. He has to be terribly blunt because nothing else will do. Refuse and the boy will burn. If you do not take the boy away, she will burn him. Bottom lines only, with no time for anything else. And that's when Gilly really begins begging. The reading of this gets very, very uncomfortable very quickly. Okay, fine, no problem. She'll save the child, but let her take hers too. Of course she says this, who wouldn't? But John is already shutting the gate to his own soul. He tells himself not only can he not be swayed by her tears, he has to make it clear she knows he won't be so that she will obey. It's not so different to becoming a leader of his own men and ties in pretty neatly to his demonstration of authority later in the chapter. Again, there is no questioning or requesting in his voice. You'll take one boy, he says, as if it's a confirmed, foregone conclusion because that's what she has to believe. Gilly's next argument is interesting because she brings up the boy's gender. She specifically can't leave a son or she feels she would be cursed. I'm sure Gilly wouldn't be in a rush to abandon a daughter either, but this seems to be extra special, likely because of the special status Craster put on them in the dealings with the others. Although, when would Craster's wives have had the opportunities to leave a son, considering Craster always gave them away anyway? On top of that is this idea that, statistically, her son should have never lived this long in the first place. Gilly grew up watching countless other sons, perhaps even brothers, being killed upon birth, or given away at least, and who knows what happens. She would have known if she were to ever fall pregnant with a son, 
the same fate would befall him. We saw how frightened she was of such a prospect back in Clash. But even with the supreme luck of being born just as Craster died, this boy knows not only survives starvation and exposure in the bitter, bitter lands above the wall, he escaped the bloody mutiny of the Night's Watch and an attempt by the dead creatures to take him back and the long journey to the wall. That's a one in a million, one in a billion shot that Gilly and Sam did it and now she's being told that at the end of all that, she has to leave him behind or let him die. Needless to say, the emotions are powerful. This is instantly the most important moment in Gilly's life. Everything is hinging on this. So John needs a heavy hammer. The one he chooses, as he literally thinks to himself, kill the boy, is to force this girl to feel pain. Yes, this is definitely not the boy we knew, as John commands Gilly to just let a finger feel the pain of a candle. That's it, just a finger, just a candle. And we don't have Gilly's POV here, but obviously she's comparing that pain, that pain of a single finger, to something multiplied all over her body with a roaring fire. She's imagining it for herself, for Dallas' son's body, and finally for her own son. It's terrible, it's terrible to read and imagine and awful for everyone, but it is effective. But this is her next concern. Maybe I will save one baby's life, but I'd not only be abandoning mine, but handing him to this horrible death you've just demonstrated for me. So what's that about? John's defence to this is that there would be no logic in Melisandre burning Gilly's child. Craster is no king, so there's no king's blood, so why burn him? But as we spoke about a lot back in Feast, this line of defence seems just a bit too thin for me. It is a huge risk, because does Melisandre ever get told about the switch? I don't believe she does. Now, I might be wrong there, maybe we'll find out in the further we read, but I don't think she ever does find out. So if John goes down without telling her, and Val can't get to her, because I think Val does know, and Melisandre really thinks she needs some king's blood pretty quick, well, we know, thanks to recent news, that Shireen isn't going to have a happy future, but that's with Stannis. So Melisandre herself might try and use Gilly's baby to bring John back. And again, we discussed this before, but let's just quickly consider John's psyche if he were to wake and come back to life to find out he was either brought back or there was an attempt to bring him back by burning a baby alive. How is that going to affect John? It will destroy his soul. And the least of it is this broken oath to Gilly and Sam. Now, that's all just possibility and conjecture, but I truly do worry for this child's safety. I just think John's being a bit too confident with this. John still tries to spin a persuasive positive now. Your baby will grow up fed and as warm as you can get on the wall. He'll learn all these skills that Gilly would want for him and more. John even dangles the possibility of a future reunion, but Gilly still says she won't do it. That makes complete sense. Who would expect less? So John needs a heavier hammer and finds one. I won't. I won't. Kill the boy for John. You will, else I promise you... The day that they burn Dallas, boy, yours will die as well. Well, yeah, it is heavy. The difficulty of rule and leadership in what Terry Pratchett, Sir Terry, would call interesting times. That's what we're seeing here. This is what John has to become in order to help people, in order to save the world. It's a tall order that will take all of his soul. He can't remain squeaky clean Eddard Stark if he's going to complete the mission or save people. He must freeze his heart in the same way that Daenerys is going to end up embracing her Targaryen-ness. Kill the boy has really started strong. It's threatening to kill a baby if you don't get your own way. And yeah, we're eight chapters in here and how many references to child death have we had so far? It's really just yeah building up and unfortunately we're not done. There's going to be constant throughout the book. But let's pump the brakes a little bit. John is saying this and he's saying it convincingly because he needs Gilly to believe him. But do we actually think John would ever go through with this threat? The point of this chapter, especially the ending, is that John needs to follow through on his word in order to be an effective leader. But let's say Gilly says no here and Melisandre happens to burn Mance's son that afternoon. Would John actually execute Gilly's baby because of this promise? No, you can't convince me he would. He would do anything but. He's just got to make Gilly think he would, and apparently he succeeds. 
There's no further words of comfort. He can't let her second guess now. He gives some commands, she goes, and it's done. And John doesn't even get a breather to consider what he's just had to do. You'd think he'd need a big sigh after this and he doesn't get time for that. Instead, Ghost reappears. We get a quick reminder that John has this letter from the beginning of the chapter. Yes, somehow we are just three pages in on my version. And then we're finally into crossover territory when Samwell Tarly walks in. Like I mentioned at the top, we've anticipated this quite a bit because today is the only time we see it. And it's not short either. This is a lengthy conversation between two friends covering a myriad of subjects and it's almost all copied word for word. George does do some little tricks, so it's not exactly the same, but pretty much. The only difference is the extra thoughts and tidbits we have coming from John's perspective instead of Sam's, which is a lot of fun because, to be honest, there's some little Easter eggs and connections to be made by someone who can see both sides of the conversation, when obviously neither of them can. We don't need to spend too much time talking on Sam here because we know what happens with him. We've just spent a whole book talking about him. We've discussed his future and his sea voyage and everything he goes through, as well as what he'll eventually think of this conversation once he learns a bit more about it from Gilly and from Mace Raymond. Instead, let's look at the three subjects of this repeated and only slightly changed conversation. First is the paper shield that John has been brooding over already, then the others, and then finally Sam being sent away with Gilly. It's smart structuring from John. He obviously knows he'll get nothing useful out of Sam after he tells him about the trip, and though the others are the larger issue overall, the paper shield is the more pressing one. But before he even gets into that, John sets the tone by telling Sam to get over his bleeding hand and just wear thicker gloves. There's no friendship here. He was kinder to Stannis' guards in the first chapter. This is a conversation with a purpose, just like Gilly's. So we find out what it is John has been fussing over since the opening line. Or rather, we rediscover, as we've already seen this before. I won't go overboard in the description, as you already know the outcome here, although Sam won a feast does seem like an age ago, so we'll just remember the basics. This is basically a letter of John slash the Night's Watch trying to cover their ass a bit with King Tommen, or really Tywin Lannister. And there's some good chapter sequencing with Quentin from last week, because he also still believed that Tywin was alive, as John does here whereas we know better. It's saying, just wanted to let you know, I know it looks like we're helping out our enemy here, but we're really not. We're just using some of his stuff and giving him some of ours. It's, don't make a big fuss out of it. It's not a big deal. And definitely don't come and beat us up. Oh, and by the way, if you do have any spare men, maybe you could finally throw some our way. That would be cool. Writing a letter that groveling and apologetic is going to be hard enough anyway, but it's the fact that it's being sent to the Lannisters specifically that tears at Jon so much. And as Sam points out, makes him hesitate to actually sign the thing. We discussed the themes of this at the top of the chapter, the wolf versus crow dilemma. John doesn't want to not do this because it's embarrassing, it's because of who has to do it too. He has to beg and scrape before the people who killed his family. As he reminisces on the early chapters of Game of Thrones, where Bran fought against Tommen in the training yard, he basically lets slip how unfair he thinks it all is. Bran was stronger than Tommen by far, yet he's the one who's dead. He'll have a similar thought in a moment about Rog winning all his battles but still losing his head. All of it is just unfair, and John doesn't like having to face that reality, understandably. One of the advantages of being stuck up on the wall and unable to help your siblings is at least you don't have to see the victors rubbing it in your face all the time. This talk of Bran produces one of the best connections between the dual conversations. Here's the quote. That got an odd look from Sam, and for a moment he looked as if he wanted to say something. Well, thanks to Sam 1, we know exactly what he wanted to say. This is the moment Sam chews on his own guilt of knowing that Bran is alive, but being unable to tell John due to the oath he made. We can imagine what an incredible difference that would make if Sam were to spill, but the secrets are kept and we just have to get the wink from George instead. Although it is an interesting idea, let's just pretend for a moment here. John's end comes about because he decides enough is enough, he's going to get Aya back himself. So let's say Sam does spill the beans and admits that Bran is alive and above the wall. Does John skip a whole book and make the same decision just 12 chapters earlier? I say, absolutely. If Sam tells the whole story and includes that part about being on the wrong side of the wall now, 
Well, that changes everything. At least with Aya, John could kind of convince himself she was theoretically safe and warm, protected in Winterfell, there's other people she can be around, etc. Hearing that Bran is not only out in the wild, in winter, but knowing he could potentially fall prey to the others and become a white, I say, with that knowledge, John gets up, grabs Longclaw, whistles Ghost, and is on the other side of the wall, tracking Summer within the hour. So in a weird way, Sam might have saved John's life with this news. Obviously, if John made this decision now, he wouldn't have a book's worth of build-up about letting the wildlings through and all the other problems that Bo and Marsh has with him. But the catalyst of the ending is John deciding to ride south and do something completely not to do with the watch. But this scenario would be just going above the wall and doing a bit of ranging. They do that every day, or they used to. He can even pass it off as going to have a quick look for Benjamin again. There's wiggle room for John to be allowed to do this, basically. It still produces massive problems with Stannis and the wildlings and what happens to Castle Black, but it's a lot easier to get to in general. So, food for thought. Back to reality, John tries to make the argument that this letter is pointless anyway. The last has never helped before, this will only make them do even less. Then he switches to trying to claim he's not giving all that much to Stannis, no more than he has to at least, and he gets across that he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Here's the quote. The more you give a king, the more he wants. We are walking on a bridge of ice with an abyss on either side. Pleasing one king is difficult enough. Pleasing two is hardly possible. And Sam quite agrees. You have to play both sides here. You need to be in a decent position no matter the winner because you're responsible for a lot of lives and this like 8,000 year old institution is all on you. And this is where we can make another connection back to Sam 1 because as John starts prattling about how maybe Stance will win, Sam fought back then. He's trying to convince himself but can't. I think it's a step further than that. John wanted Sam to convince him. He wanted to run this by one last person. Just on the off chance, Sam says, yeah, this is a waste of time. I wouldn't bother with it. Or Stannis probably will win, so just keep on his good side and don't worry about Tywin. That way, John can keep his family pride and not have to deal with any Lannisters. He does say, it's death and destruction I want to bring down upon House Lannister, not scorn. So I think his feelings are pretty clear. In some ways, we can see this as the last use of Samuel Tarly as a friend, before John does his killing of the boy and sends him away. Consider, he didn't need Sam for this part of the conversation. He needs him for information on the others, and obviously for telling him about the mission to go south, but this was extra that John chose to do with him, because his best friend was his last, perhaps subconscious, hope for doing the thing he wants instead of what's best for the Night's Watch. But this is all about kill the boy, and John will allow himself no further crutches going forward. John confirms this after Sam says, a paper shield is better than none, and John thinks, him and Eamon both. So we already know he's had this exact conversation, and was taking a Hail Mary that someone would talk him out of it. We also, just to get a little bit of chapter sequencing, when John muses on Stannis winning White Harbour, we'll get the beginning of that mission in just two chapters time. So that's one third of the conversation out of the way, and now it's actually Sam who brings up Gilly. And this is where we get some discrepancies between the two conversations, as John passes over some dialogue by saying, they talked for a while of Mance and Stannis and Melisandre of Ashai. Well, one of the bits that John misses out here, that we do get in full in Sam 1, is John saying he'd prefer to take Mance's head because he was of the Watch and his life therefore lies with them, which gives obvious connections to the end of this chapter. So it's interesting that George chose to leave that out. John does the same little time skip when Sam starts babbling about goat's milk and previous Lord Commanders. He believes Sam babbles because he's uncomfortable talking about breasts, but in fairness, that doesn't show up in Sam's chapter, so give him some credit. Either way, John skips right ahead to the next important section, the others. We will see John ask a similar question of Tormund later on in the book when the wildlings finally pass beneath the gate, and our favourite big man gives a very emotional rendition of what it looks like when they truly come and rise. Something that I think was given to Osher in the TV show, there's kind of similar stories here. As well as some interesting notes on what the weather does when the others come, which we also get a little bit of here but the true value is right at the beginning with Sam, as much as we like Tormund later on. It's easy to forget or dismiss the info we get here, 
We can say it seems obvious because we've seen it through multiple POVs, but consider this might be the single most important piece of information the wall receives about how to defend against the enemy in terms of dragon steel maybe being useful against the others themselves. I think we're all assuming that's going to be coming in pretty important at some point. We already knew about the obsidian, true, but this is something new and again very clearly critical. Perhaps more or clear information will come, but if the Night's Watch can't arm themselves properly with the right weapons, then the game is over before it even starts. That comes with further discussions we already had in Feast about what happens with Dragonstone and Loras and all that, whether any shipments of Obsidian actually do make it up to the north, and yet again, sure, that's just Obsidian, but it's all going to matter. This news about Valerian Steel is super important, yet even that John brushes off initially. He wants intel on the actual enemy, who they are and what they want, because he's searching for a weakness, yes, but also because John knows they probably can't win this war by force of arms. So is a peace or truce or negotiating possible at all? Seems incredible to think, but he's willing to try any angle. We'll see that John sticks with this idea later on when he puts two bodies into the ice cells just on the off chance they become whites and then they can experiment or interrogate them or just try and learn anything from it. Now that section with the others actually ends fairly quickly, as once John finds out Sam has no further information to give, he gets them onto the next item of the agenda. Sam is also going with Gilly, and Eamon as well. The details and reasoning are the same as in Sam 1, so we don't need to rehash this part too much, and we also had discussions during our Feast episodes about whether this was a good idea from John, merely in the aspect of keeping Sam at Castle Black as a commodity, and maybe trying to learn from Clydus, etc, so we won't repeat that now. Instead, let's look at John's puzzlement over Sam not wanting to go. The conversation with Gilly was too taxing to coddle Sam now, so he leans back on this skill that he's been trying to grow of authority. He orders Sam to obey. He orders Sam to be brave. This is not a conversation between friends. This is a commander and an obeyer. Do what you're told. Kill the boy, John thought. The boy in you and the one in him. Kill the both of them, you bloody bastard. Now, harsh as that sounds, it is done with kindness as well. He tells Sam not to be afraid and reminds him of all that he's conquered. It's far more than most people, but nice as he's trying to be, it also has to be done with purpose. He needs Sam to succeed. The Sam accepts, and off he goes. After mentioning it several times and putting it to use, John finally reveals the source of this kill the boy mantra. It's parting advice from Maester Eamon, advice once given to Egg himself. Let me read it to you here. You are half the age that Egg was, and your own burden is a crueler one, I fear. You have little joy of your command, but I think you have the strength in you to do the things that must be done. Kill the boy, Jon Snow. Winter is almost upon us. Kill the boy and let the man be born. Before we get into the effect this has on John and his rule, let me just start by saying how effective George is being here by linking it to Egg specifically because we have actually seen Egg as a literal boy. So we can imagine him growing up and having to say goodbye to that part of himself, the part that we loved from the Duncan Egg tales. That's very, very difficult and it frames John's own dilemma just perfectly. It's a wonderful choice by George there. Now we could take a real deep dive into the psychological effect this has on John throughout the book. But like I mentioned earlier, we'll probably just have to do that as we go. We're going to see him taking the advice straight away in terms of sending people to different places on the wall, a tactic he's going to keep up throughout and may live or die to regret. It is part of this effort to just throw himself into the role entirely. After all, it's not exactly a part-time gig, is it? Even if this was the most prosperous era in Westerosi history, John is supposed to serve for life and have nothing to do with what came before. Lingering between half can only incite pain. I think the advice is dual-pronged from Eamon. Half is that severing of connection from family. It's a great callback to that conversation in the Game of Thrones where Aemon first revealed his surname and relayed how difficult it was for him to hear all this terrible news of the collapse and death of his family. And he had to hear that at multiple points in his life as well. So perhaps he's telling John to get ahead of the game by numbing himself to that side of things, even though John has experienced more than his fair share already. 
I wonder if Eamon is trying to prevent John from making the same mistakes he once did. We know Eamon was eventually able to semi-shut himself off and become one of his role, but we don't know that it happened immediately. He might have spent long years in a half-existence trying to play both roles and getting hurt for it. The other half, the other prong, likely the more important one, is this one of leadership. Eamon is telling him, again, to save him from heart eye pain, to basically give himself a bit of heart eye pain. Say goodbye to the young John we were remembering and comparing to in John 1. You have to be different now, sterner, harder, willing to be unliked and be unpopular, because basically, it's all on you. Again, this would be hard enough at the best of times, but sorry John, you happen to be the guy in charge at the single most important time in our entire history. So there's no room for messing around or having a laugh. You have to get real and fast. Or, let me offer you this, maybe a bonus third prong. We know Eamon is relating his experience with his own brother, and Eamon would have spent a lot of time pondering the intricacies of leadership given how close he was to it. We know it's something he decided would make rule easier or more effective for Egg, but I wonder if he is also relating it to Rhaegar here. I wonder if Rhaegar once had to decide the same thing, or was told the same thing. They had to do away with former fancies and dreams, and, and go all in on this prophecy to save his house slash the world. I'm always obsessed with the relationship between Eamon and Rhaegar, so I hope it does involve that in some way. The advice sounds harsh in some ways, but really it is only protective of John in a way. Eamon cares about him, of course. But that large paragraph is all the focus we actually get on it there, even if this theme is staying with John throughout now. For the moment, he has actual tasks to be getting on with. I like this little note of how he makes rounds of Castle Black each day. He listens to the men himself, and makes sure he talks to all the different factions. It's very neddish of him. He's a visible, accessible commander. Plus, the image of ghosts just following him around all day is really cool to imagine. But does he keep this up throughout the book? We're going to have to keep our eye out because I can't remember. One of these reports is of the Wrong Way Rangers. So Richard Hope and Justin Massey have ridden south. Now these two have been around with Stannis since Clash, but they'll both take on a more prominent role the further we get into Dance. As a quick reminder, Hope wants Winterfell. He wants Stannis to attract the Dreadfort instead of going via the Hill Tribes, so he's set up as very much anti-John. During the march later on, he'll be given second in command, so he's an important guy, even if we don't get all that much from him later on. He might have also killed one of Tormund's sons, Dormund, during the previous battle, so it's probably a good job he's not around later when Tormund does return. Justin Massey we know a little bit better. He's a former squire of Robert Baratheon, he's a bit more of a joker, he's a fan of the ladies, hence the Robert Baratheon connection, and he's damn ambitious as well. He also wants Winterfell, plus Val, and he also wants to strike at the Dreadfort. We know Justin better thanks to the later Asher chapters, when he's put in charge of her, and is at least semi-nice towards her, possibly because of that ambition again. At least we know he hates Clayton Suck, so that's a plus in his column. We'll return to him at a later point to discuss all that though. It's while thinking on the wrong way rangers that John let slip that Onion Knight, our favourite captain, has been sent to White Harbour via Salador San. So there's that chapter sequencing again, with Davos due to pop up later today. I think it's the first mention of this in the book, I'm pretty sure. But then again, we know from Feast anyway, don't we? So it's not exactly a surprise. After this, John is finally able to get some rest. And he doesn't have wolf dreams for once. Instead, he just has some incredibly disturbing ones about the two babies whose lives he's changing. But when he wakes, he does think of Ghost's enhanced senses. And he actually says to himself, Ghost is more alive than I am. Well, that's a sad line to read, isn't it? And this is John now, at the beginning still. What do you think he's going to be like near the end? Also, well... Yeah, he's going to be very, very right about that at the end of the book. As he's waking, John gives another tease to keep us going through this, the longest chapter of the book so far, and actually the third longest chapter in the book total, I think. I'd have to check on the variable, but of the actual POV chapters, that's his mark. He wants to speak with Bedwick and Janice Slint. Bedwick passes by with ease, but why would he want to speak to his main rival? That's sure to be juicy. But George keeps us waiting, because first it is farewell time. Yes, it is goodbye to Sam, Gilly, Eamon and Mance's son. Well, John is hoping anyway, he's not actually sure which one it is. 
It's harsh to make us see this one twice, isn't it? It hurt enough in Feast, especially since we absolutely know now, John will never see Eamon again, or be able to discuss his true lineage with him when he finally finds out. But that was just from their point of view. Now, in Dance, we're really going to appreciate just how much John could have used a good friend and some smart people around him. We get this final burst of strength and command from Gilly about the naming of her child, and her being a mother first, not a lady. We have the advice of arming knowledge from Maester Eamon, and we have the goodbye with the best friend John's ever had, post-Rob at least. He's an honest brother. Would either of these guys have survived without the other? Very difficult to make that claim. Now they did spend a lot of their arcs apart, and they reunited oh so briefly, but now are separating again. It's very difficult to put up with, it's very emotional. As they part, John recalls the first time that he met Gilly. Sam states, she's stronger than she knows, and this is true, we should give more props to Gilly. And John says, the same of Sam. This is also true, we should give more props to Sam. But that's before the real emotion of Kicker. We've already read once, but have to bring up again. The cold trickles on his face reminded John of the day he'd bid farewell to Rob at Winterfell, never knowing that it was for the last time. And pull your hood up, the snowflakes are melting in your hair. Damn, that's rough. We know John never did see Rob again. Let's hope that rule doesn't continue. With that done, John takes a moment to think of the logistics of the wall, mainly how its length is what lets it down, which is something he intends to remedy now as he goes to meet Bedwick, whom we all know much better as Giant. This is the castle's plan going into effect, what we discussed back in John 1. He said he's going to man them, and it's true. So we begin here with Giant being sent off, the first of John's, uh, well, is he a friend? More of an acquaintance, but we know him. So we're starting off small, really, in terms of who John is going to send away. Eventually they'll all go, but for now it's just Giant. Who we have known for a while, like I say, he's become a pretty regular feature. He was on the Great Ranging, he stayed loyal in the Mutiny, he survived on the Bridge of Skulls, so in some ways perhaps he deserves this promotion. The castle chosen for him is Icemark, the seventh castle of the Wall, counting from west to east. So he's just three away from Castle Black, and he's actually next door to the Night Fort. Given our many questions about the future of that particular castle, in terms of Queen Selyse or Bowen Marsh, or even Stannis or John themselves, it's not inconceivable that we will see Giant again in the future. Giant's own trepidations highlight what John is doing here. He's changing how things are run by switching the hiring policy. Instead of going for the most noble, or the higher class, or whoever's got the biggest name, he's going with who's best. Now, Giant is as low class as they come, but he's given command. So it's a new, better day on the wall, we can all agree, even if some of the Night's Watchmen don't. Many are not going to see it that way, but screw them. There are marks against Giant too, he can't read or write, and John notes he's not really a people guy, but he's loyal and he's good at what he does. So John gives him a small command and intends to use him as eyes. That's the important thing here, as John relates with his story of Raymond Redbeard and how he got a, a toehold basically on the north via the wall. 30 is better than none, he says, and he's damn right. This is the type of thing that should have been done years ago. We'll try and keep an eye on these commissions as we go. Unfortunately, we know very little of Icemark, but it's worth knowing that Corrin Halfhand once said Icemark should be remanned to defend against the Wildlings, so it's obviously considered key geographically. I also wonder about the name. Is there perhaps a particular scar in the ice not seen elsewhere on the wall? Hmm, who knows, but interesting. So Giant gets 20 men from the Watch and 10 from Stannis, so that's the first mix of brothers plus Stannis' men, and we don't know how that goes. We don't really hear anything further on Giant, but fingers crossed. Giant's next set of questions, if we hadn't guessed already, gives the game away on what John wants with Janos Slint. He is to be given the next command at Greyguard. Our initial reaction is, huh? Wait a minute, John, wait. This guy is as slimy as they come, and he's absolutely horrible to you, plus he helped kill your dad. And you're promoting him? What, what are you doing here? Come on now. But that plays, partly at least, into the themes of the chapter. Kill the boy, put those old hatreds aside for the duty of the wall. But I say partly because John is also being shrewd here. He's already sent some of Janus's men from King's Landing off with Giant, he's now separating Slint and Fawn, and he's getting him away from John personally. John absolutely recognises there is danger in having Slint around, and decides he can make use of him and then minimise the risk 
rather than just taking the tempting route of punishment. John is clever at this kind of stuff. His problem comes in maybe believing he's finished once he gets rid of Slit and Thorn and not thinking others might also start disliking him. Finally, we get the human Boyle himself turn up. Just as John happens to be cleaning Longclaw, bare steel and all, some men would have given that task to a steward or a squire, but Lord Eddard had taught his sons to care for their own weapons. Just give us a godswood pool and we're really set on me. Of course, the meaning of bare steel and a bare sword is completely lost on the slint because he's an idiot, and George quickly reminds us to be infuriated whenever we see him thanks to his mannerisms and crossing his arms and just being a dick, basically. We hate this guy, or I do at least, but I hope you join me in that. John hates him so much he even imagines cutting his head off. Well, is this foreshadowing? Does that even count? I mean, we're pages away, but okay. I think we could probably call that one shadowing. That's never a four. But John reminds himself of the rules. Crimes are wiped away, past and all. Now he's going to be preaching that a whole lot once the wildlings come to town, and admits here, when it's something personal, it is a bit more difficult to accept, so... There is blood between us. This man helped slay my father, and did his best to have me killed as well. So not to skip ahead here, but we can really see how this ending really plays into what John truly wants. Try as he might, he can't forget that part of himself. He can't here, he can't at the end. He basically just looks out that this event can cross over into Night's Watch duties. So preach away, John, but we know the truth. John wastes no time in getting to business. The news is delivered in a straightforward manner, but let's not pretend he doesn't take a certain glee at all this toil and hardship that Janus will have to do. Straight away, as you'd expect, Slint gets up himself. He refuses once, tosses in a bastard insult for good measure, defies the command again, then goes off about his own history and kicks the chair over on his way out. He's charming. John thinks this. He still sees me as a boy, a green boy to be cowed by angry words. So if we've been following the themes of this chapter whatsoever, or even just the mantra that John is now saying over and over again, we know what's happening next. This cannot stand. John's authority must be established or all these plans he's making of how to save the world are worth nothing. Surprisingly, John even allows Janos a night's sleep for decision, but nothing changes. So it happens in the same common room that John got elected in. I think that's where he got elected. In front of everyone. Crows, queensmen, kingsmen, everyone. That's important, and it's pretty savvy as well. When John gives a final chance, Janos does himself no favours. A simple note isn't enough for this guy. He has to say boy again. He has to give extra insults. He has to act big in front of the others. And, to be fair, it's starting to work. People are laughing. The cracks are showing. This is a key moment in the formation of the watch. So John delivers a sentence. First he thinks to himself what his options are. I'll read you the quote. And confined into an ice cell, he might have said. A day or ten cramped up inside the ice would leave him shivering and feverish and begging for release. John did not doubt. And the moment he is out, he and Foreman begin to plot again. And tie him to his horse, he might have said. If Slint did not wish to go to Greyguard as its commander, he could go as its cook. It will only be a matter of time until he deserts then. And how many others will he take with him? And hang him, John finished. That has the decided effect. Slint goes white, so we're already enjoying. But then there's a moment where it all balances on an edge. Everyone suddenly stands up. All these different factions and all their different loyalties, some of them towards General Slint himself. It looks like it might break into chaos now instead of the, at the end of the book. But this is John's command. This is his castle. Alice of Thorn steps aside and Janos Slint is seized. Yes, you might be able to hear me smiling. All the usual protests come out. He's got a traitor father. He's marked of the beast. I've got friends at King's Landing, etc, etc. But John notes even more people are coming to watch. Val shows up and even more crucially, Stannis. Here's another quote. This is wrong, John thought. Stop. Emmett turned back, frowning. My lord? I will not hang him, said John. Bring him here. Oh, heaven save us, he heard Marsh cry out. The smile that Lord Janos Slint smiled then had all the sweetness of rancid butter, until John said, Ed, fetch me a block, and unsheathed Longclaw. <laughs> oh yes, here we go, you can definitely hear me smile now, and jumping up and down in my chair. Janos Slint ends being dragged forward like a child, his cowardice on show for the world. 
He tries one more stab at defiance, and then the strength is gone. He's begging, and John has a choice, except he doesn't really. Turning back now would be worse than letting him off in the first place. If he wants to kill the boy and let the man be born, he must do this as the first man in his life, Eddard Stark, would have done. No, John thought. You close that door. Longclaw descended. Party poppers, fireworks everywhere. Round of applause, if you please. Woohoo! Yes, yes, yes. Never let it be said. George doesn't give us what we want sometimes. Yes, again, like I said at the beginning, we've all read Feast and we know the trappings of vengeance, but you know what? It just feels too good in the moment to ignore. We aren't supposed to enjoy a cowardly man's death or John having to kill, but we do. And you made us this way, George, so there you go. It just fits too perfectly. Firstly, this guy is scum, and annoying scum at that. He's designed to rub us the wrong way. George does that very, very specifically with his speech pans and all the stuff he says, being pompous, etc, etc. And that's even before we consider how horrible his actions have been throughout the entire series. And they have been horrible. The Starks overall have been truly, soundly beaten in A Song of Ice and Fire. And part of the third act, I believe, is that they will get some vengeance as they steadily return. Not on all counts, but in some places. Aya has already started off. Will it make them feel better about their situation overall? Nah, it's doubtful, but it is nice for us. And this has all the markings of that. The very first image we ever had of Eddard Stark was his executing a traitor to the Night's Watch. Now his own betrayal has been repaid by his son, who was present for that first scene by doing the very same thing. Consider the second clear image we get of Ned is sharpening ice in the Godswood, which John was doing with Longhaw just minutes ago. And yes, that picture is becoming astoundingly clear. Is it vengeance? Yeah, sure. Is it justice as well? Oh, you bet. That's how Ned acted in the beginning, and that's the role that John fills now. He gave Janos every opportunity. John didn't seek it as much as he might have liked to. Yes, he could have chosen one of those other options, but not if he wanted this effective rule. Not if he's going for broke and truly wants respect, and not if he's going to be like his father. And guess what? Who else likes justice? Stannis Baratheon, who gives John his nod of approval here at the end of the chapter. This is also key to their relationship. This shows Stannis that John is a guy who gets it in his estimation. We cannot understate the weight of this moment. This is Jon Snow, Lord Commander, basking in the example of Eddard Stark and getting justice for him at the same time. Danos Slint was a bad man. So good riddance. And yes, that is a lot of talking about Jon, and we've still got more to come later. So maybe we should move on now. Let's go very, very quickly to somewhere a bit warmer and move on to Tyrion 3. So today we have one part of Tyrion's journey ending and another beginning. It really is easy to break up his arc into little mode of transport sections. This time round, it's waving goodbye to the litter and entering the world of the riverboat. Something essentially as new to us as it is to Tyrion, where he also meets a whole bunch of new people, one of whom may well end up being one of the most important people in the entire second half of the series. Yes, theories abound about who Jon Griff is or what his future holds, but I think we all agree he will play a big part. He is going to matter in some fashion. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So it's big for us to meet him, but it might turn out equally big for him to meet the man who's going to give his life a rather large nudge in a certain direction, one that goes away from Daenerys. But that's all to come, like I say. First, we have to meet the rest of the River crew, Tyrion has to get used to not being Tyrion anymore. We'll meet another important character, a future POV no less, in Griff slash John Connington. And the beginning of what is, when it's all said and done, probably the nicest time that Tyrion actually gets in this book. It's probably the most enjoyable time. He will come around to it. And also, those little hints we've seen, those little flashes of old Tyrion where his mind starts working, gets him past the drink, gets him past the depression. We'll see a little bit of that as well, because he has things to work out. And, well, he gets right to it. He gets to it very fast. We'll see those shades of Tyrion just coming out despite himself. He doesn't really want it yet, but it's there. So let's get going. A lot of Tyrion 2 was about Tyrion sleeping, dreaming, and then waking. And Tyrion 3 actually starts the same way. 
except before he would sleep and wake in pretty much the same situation and time seemed to blur slightly it was all just running into one now Tyrion waits to find something different finally Ilya is gone and the litter stopped okay good that's caught our eye isn't it now we've got something to be interested in as fun as Tyrion 2 was we're eager to stretch our legs and move on to the next section of the journey George continues to cure our interest when Tyrion sees two riders talking to Ilya outside the cheesemonger might not be in danger most to pity, but we always want to discover who new riders with swords are. No doubt Tyrion does as well, but he chooses to play it nonchalant here, opting instead for a technique we're going to see over and over and over again in his dance journey, far more than we ever did at King's Landing, which is saying something. He's endearing himself to people by just being pretty cheeky. That's how he's going to introduce himself, that's how he's going to set himself apart. This time it's by insinuating he will defend himself and his dear friend Ilio with an axe if needs be, and he will even prove it by fighting a duck. While Tyrion does generally find success with his surprise them of wit and confidence plan of attack, it also does land him in hot water at times, and earns more than a few fat lips once he meets Jorah Mormont, and it seems he's done so here, when the larger of the two riders reveals his name to also be Duck. I'd really like to imagine that Halden Halfmaester specifically doubted Tyrion could kill a duck to initiate this exact result, but that might be a step too far. So this is our first introduction to two of the Shy Maid's crew, though really we only have their names and physical descriptions to go on. Let's focus on Duck's story a bit more on a few pages when he relates his past to us, and first round up Howden Halfmaester, a man whom I must say I find myself flip-flopping on fairly often, I'm never too sure of what I make of him. So this is Holden, slightly older, hair tied back, and I must admit I forget that he's slightly older, I always picture him as younger, and with a lined ascetic face. Now well done if you knew what that word meant. Not lined, I think we're confident on that one, but ascetic. I certainly didn't, so if you're like me, don't worry, I've got you covered, I've looked it up. The definition is thus characterized by severe self-discipline and abstination from all forms of indulgence typically for religious reasons hmm, all right so that's pretty telling basically Tyrion has noted that this is the serious one the responsible one who's going to study him more closely than the brawny man he might have to fight and holden looking at him with cool eyes in a second just backs that up because of course Tyrion is dead on with this description i do find that definition rather telling actually especially the abstination from all forms of indulgence because actually Tyrion himself is going to be going through that it's mentioned at the beginning of Tyrion 4 how he's not got any booze not allowed any women he's basically being put for a little bit of rehab at the beginning of the shy maid here but that's for later on in terms of background we have really very little on Halden. We'll soon learn he attended the Citadel, but did not acquire enough links to make the whole title, despite certainly seeming smart enough, and smarter than many other maces that we meet. Speaking of others, we do get more than a few people who went to the Citadel, but never fully qualified. Samuel Tarly may well be the latest, possibly Sorello as well. And in fairness, when you think about it, considering Euron is coming around the corner, are any of those guys that we know to be currently studying at the Citadel ever going to pass before the thing goes up in flames? Possibly not. So the idea that Halden left the Citadel just because of poor grades doesn't really stand considering his ability to match wits with Tyrion. So I'm wondering if this suggests there was some politics in the air, some non-academic bullshit that kicked Halden, either fairly or unfairly, out on his ass, and he actually has a similar story to Duck, a similar story to all these folk planning to return to Westeros and exact their revenge. Would certainly fit, maybe we'll find out one day. Other than that, we know nothing and have to go with just what we see. And this is what I mean when I flip-flop, because depending on which scene you're reading, you can either view Halden as a fairly detached guy who's just doing a job and doesn't care for the people around him all that much, and he really just has to put up with Tyrion when he has to, or you can see him as a bit more invested. There are shades of kindness. He maybe does care about young Griff. Maybe he is actually quite glad to have Tyrion around. It's just not very clear. Whether that investment is in the aim to return home, in the education of young Griff, or actually he seems pretty loyal to Griff as well, John Connington. And to go with that, at times he does seem kind of, like I say, grudgingly fond of Tyrion and their Savas games. For Tyrion, 
Howden is a breath of fresh air, an intellectual he can actually have a proper conversation with and battle with mentally. I imagine it's a two-way street that's just as relieving for Howden because neither of them seem to get that kind of stimulation very often. We're going to have to keep an eye on this as we go, so make sure you keep me to it. If I'm not keeping up with the Howden watch, let me know and we'll see how many scenes we flip-flop on him for and where we land on his eventual loyalties. Future-wise, there isn't too much to give us any hints. Howden will be in Tyrion's next three chapters before Jorah Mormont comes along and ruins it all, something that Howden will actually catch a little heat for, and then he is present in John Connington's chapters, though he doesn't feature quite so highly. We know he makes it over to Westeros and starts playing the maester role at Griffin's Roost, and we see him very briefly in Arianne's Wind chapter, when he tells her that Storm's End now belongs to John Con, Young Griff, and the Golden Company. That's a pretty important declaration, one I had to obsess over a lot for the Castle's book when I was trying to guess the future of Storm's End. We don't know when that Arianne chapter is precisely, whether Howden's telling the truth, or what he believes to be the truth, or just bending the truth a bit, but there's every possibility that this comes post-conflict with Mace Tyrell, and they have run Storm's End, whether it be via battle or trickery, as I guessed during the Castle's book. I won't repeat that for you here, don't worry, you know where to find it. So will Howden have to remain at Griffin's Roost? You would imagine that it will at least be brought along to Storm's End, and then maybe to King's Landing as well. Or will John Con decide that young Griff needs a bit more prestige on his side when he first arrives, and may up with a full chain perhaps? That would seem pretty harsh, but John Con isn't in this for Howden's benefit, unfortunately. There might even be an idea to steadily remove all the boat people until only John Con remains by young Griff's side, although this chapter seems to go against that with the clothes we'll find in these chests that these two guys are picking up from Illyro in a moment. Clearly, they were at least supposed to be involved up to the Daenerys stage in the original plan. Either way, Howden the Man has been important to young Griff's development in terms of language and history and general knowledge. He proves his worth again when they reach the Stormlands and he's able to quickly ascertain the political situation with the Lannisters etc. You need that kind of mind on your side. And young Griff seems to be generally fond of his river family, including Howden, and is unlikely to willingly leave any behind, but he's also a young man quickly becoming enraptured with the thrill and success of war, so his priorities may shift slightly. I always like to compare Duck and Howden with Jerris and Archibald, whom we met just two chapters ago last week. The latter are much firmer friends, to be sure, but there are similarities. Both have a larger, much more capable fighter, and then someone to balance that out, where their value comes from their mouths rather than their sword hands. One with his smarts, one with his charisma, but still the similarities are there. And both pairs also have a similar mission in helping one young man accomplish one key, continent-spanning mission. This book is about the dance between these two key dragon figures in Daenerys and Young Griff, and maybe Jon too, if you want to include him, but it's also superb at showing the type of people orbiting around such giant figures and therefore finding themselves part of these huge, surely historical movements. We've said it about Daenerys before, she's gravitational. Everyone just gets pulled into the thread around her. And George does a good job, a great job at showing us all these moving pieces and moving around these bigger characters. Now back to the present, back to the actual chapter. Like I say, we note that these chests are changing hands. Illyro is basically playing resupply point for the crew of the Shy Maid. And while we quickly see a bit more of Howden being the one in charge and Duck being the one who likes a laugh, we actually see a completely different side of Illyro just for a second. This is probably one of the most interesting parts of the whole chapter for me. It starts out innocently enough when he just asks, how fares our lad? And here's of young Griff's growth in strength and height. That seems pretty standard, just general politeness, just asking about his crew. But then we have this, let me read it to you. There is a gift for the boy in one of the chests. Some candied ginger. He was always fond of it. Illyro sounded oddly sad. I thought I might continue on to go Gohandroy with you. A farewell feast before you start down river. We have no time for feasts, my lord, said Howden. This seems super striking to me. We've already established through the first two chapters and in prior books that Ilio is a piece of shit. He doesn't care about anyone. He uses people. He's just horrible across the board. But here he's being genuinely 
timid. Like he dare not overstep his mark, kind of. Like he doesn't want to say too much, he doesn't want to go too far. He actually sounds sad when he's always been so boastful and confident and happy of all his little luxuries. Let's split this sentence up, let's have a look at it. First, we have a gift for the boy, whom the first time reader only knows as Griff's son. So is it odd that Illyro is giving this apparently unrelated boy a gift? Maybe a tad. But let's also consider the gift itself. Some candied ginger, because he knows young Griff was always fond of it. Again, consider what we know of Illyro Mopatis. He does not send gifts. He sends tools and calls them gifts. He sent Barris and Selmy to Daenerys. He's sending Tyrion now. We'll see in a moment he's sending the crew nice court clothes. You can even make the argument his wedding gift to Daenerys, the free dragon eggs, was done with a purpose in mind. Possibly that they were going to end up being something Viserys could sell when it came to add swords to their cause. But candied ginger has no purpose. It's merely included because he knows that someone likes them. It's an indulgence. This is a genuine emotional gift. That's something completely new for Rio, as far as we know. As if that's not enough, we have him sadly trying to come along for a quick feast with the crew. It reminds me of a divorced parent who wants to just get any second they can with their child. You can almost hear the begging in his voice, even though it goes against his own plan, he just he needs this. Whereas the crew, they need to get south quickly to supposedly meet of Daenerys, which Illyro knows, but he basically can't help himself. Even a single day with this boy who, again, supposedly isn't anything to him, would be worth it. As a rereader, I'm not sure there's a better convincing passage in this book for the idea that young Griff is the son or is some relation to Illyro. But as Haldon says, there's no time. Various Dothraki have been stirred up, likely because of Daenerys' slave trade ripples, and they smartly want to avoid them. I wonder how much river attacking Dothraki actually do. We know it's the sea they hate, not rivers, but you don't imagine they are overly fond of those either. Either way, it's another re-establishment of the Dothraki as an entity. We keep getting them brought up in these early chapters. We didn't really have to deal with them hardly at all in Feast or Storm, but they figure to become a player again in Winds as Danny's Essos journey goes full circle. So George is just slowly bringing them back into our consciousness as he did at the beginning of Danny 1. We hear of Carl Zeko and Moffo. This is the one and only time we'll ever hear of those. We've not heard them before, we won't again, but they're just built up to the name Carl Pono, the real danger in these parts. If we cast our mind all the way back, we'll remember Pono was part of Drogo's Kalasar in Game of Thrones. And once Drogo died, it was Pono who first declared himself a Karl and rode off with around 10,000 Dothraki. His Kalasar since then has apparently grown to 30,000. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we cross his path again and wins. Again, for that feeling of going full circle. There are other Dothraki that Danny has more scores to settle with, but still. Illyro is even dismissing those two cars. That's how keen he is to see young Griff. But Pono is a different matter. All of them recognise his danger, and we get a great example of how useful Halden's knowledge is as he lays this out for us. Tyrion has been listening to all this in silence, but when Halden speaks as if he's not there, he re-enters the conversation. However full of hatred he might be at the moment, he's still proud, and he does not want Illyro to speak for him. He does not want to be seen as Illyro's possession, which again, is ironic considering his later fate with a different fat man, but he's quick to point out that he can ride a horse and is to be spoken to as an equal. This is where we get the official introductions, with Duck slipping up slightly by mentioning that he was knighted by Griff, information the Tyrion we know and love will make use of later on. In that classic Tyrion vein, we also have the aspect that commonly highlights George as a writer, the love of detail, something he and Tyrion share, and I don't doubt a large part of why George loves writing Tyrion chapters so much. In this case, it's that Illyro's given name to him, Yolo, would be highlighted as Pentoshi when Tyrion obviously isn't from Pentos. So he quickly covers by establishing himself as a bastard of the Westerlands instead, something far more believable. And given what we are to learn of Haldon and his way of exposing lies, the name Yolo is something he absolutely would have seen through. Here's a quote. Tyrion realised he would do well to be careful around Haldon Halfmaester. We see the truth of this straight away when Haldon tries to give Tyrion a little entrance exam to prove he's indeed Westerosi. 
and Tyrion goes full fire and blood with these incredible details he gives on the Dance of the Dragons. He even catches Halden calling Munken Maester when he was in fact Grand Maester, so extra credit there Tyrion, well done. And he obviously does enough to pass, to annoy Halden and to shut him up anyway. I'm guessing Halden doesn't hear this kind of answer too often, so again, it's just classic Tyrion. Having said that, it's a bit 50-50 on whether this is smart by Tyrion here. He's obviously proven himself not someone to easily be messed with or manipulated, and shown that he'd have at least some worth to the venture, but then again, the point of this exercise is to prove he's a Westerosi bastard. I don't think many bastards from the Westlands are going to be able to cite such exact details on the Dance of the Dragons as Tyrion does here. Annoyed, Halden heads off, which means it's time for our goodbye to Illyro, our final goodbye. As much as we might reference him for the rest of this book, we shan't see him again in the series, though we're assuming he's going to pop up at some point. He certainly thinks so, this is what he says. Good fortune, Ilio called after them. Tell the boy I am sorry that I will not be with him for his wedding. I will rejoin you in Westeros, that I swear, by my sweet Sarah's hands. The last that Tyrion Lannister saw of Ilio and Bahatis, the Magister was standing by his litter in his brocade robes, his massive shoulders slumped, as his figure dwindled in their dust. The Lord of Cheese looked almost small. So that really backs up that feeling we had a few moments ago of a parent or a relative in turmoil. He's very clearly hurt that he can't see his son or whatever young Griff truly is to him. Look at that body language. Again, he's bringing up a boy that should be of no connection to him, but it matters to him that young Griff knows that he's sorry and that Illyro does want to be with him. And most of all, he's telling himself it's all worth it. He will be rejoined with his beloved young Griff in Westeros. Nothing is going to stop that, he believes. Again, the evidence really is mounting here. On top of that, we're getting hints of what his actual plan is now. A wedding, eh? Well, that's the first time that's come up. Is that such a priority, considering you're trying to take down an entire continent and place a new queen on the Iron Throne? The wedding of the son of one of your knights? Yes, Ilio slips up a bit here. As we can work out pretty quickly, the plan is actually to get young Griff married to Daenerys, reveal him as Aegon, and then take down Westeros together, most notably sharing the dragons and legitimising young Griff as Aegon with the dragon blood. Tyrion doesn't seem to notice this right now, but it's a hell of a clue. So, goodbye Illyro. I can't say we're sorry to see the back of you, because you are scum, but we'll probably have to put up with you later anyway. Halden tries to regain the upper hand over Tyrion by intimidating him over the various enemies they may face on their journey. Pirates at Dagger Lake, and Cora the Cruel, but the one to take note of is this shrouded lord that first freaks Duck out, and then Tyrion too, so we know it's something to take note of. It's worth a mention, as we know there was originally supposed to be an actual meeting between Tyrion and the Shrouded Lord, but George decided he needed to cut that, so we'll never know, probably we'll never know quite what that involved. So we'll refrain from taking too much of a deep dive on that, because like I say, who knows what we were involved, pretty hard to discuss, and there's plenty of theories floating around for you out there. More to the point, for this chapter, we've no idea what the Shrouded Lord is. Is he a mere legend? Is he a human man using a legend as a cover? Or something genuinely magical like we might have seen in that cut chapter? Given the confusion we get later on in Tyrion 5, we really can't rule anything out. For now, what we do know is he has a genuine effect and a grip on people's minds. We see it here with Duck, and later with the Moor and Yandri as well. We've never heard the term Shrouded Lord before, but Tyrion seems to glean the meaning straight away, that the Grey Kiss means Grey Scale, and for Tyrion, such a fate is something to truly terrify him. Really, that's the same deal for Duck and the others as well. It's not the mysterious figure they don't like talking about, it's what he brings. So like with the Dothraki being brought back into our field of vision, we're getting the same with Greyscale. It's been mentioned once in the Tyrion chapter already, later we'll have Jon and Val focus on it in terms of Shireen, and of course it will be a major part of both Tyrion and Jon Con's arc later on. Perhaps Jon Con is the extent of bringing Greyscale back into the fold, but I wouldn't be too confident in betting on it, we've already spoken about the possibility of another sweeping of the disease taking Westeros. To change the atmosphere completely, we now get the story of Rolly Duckfield 
and how he came to be in this situation. And I must say, Duck's tale of his childhood, getting fed up with the higher classes, mistreating the lower and the shame of it, etc. The fact he wasn't willing to put up with it and went and did something about it is one of my favourites. We all love stories of the snobby, rude upperclassman getting exactly what's coming to him, even if two broken arms and some ribs really is a hell of a lesson. It just links in so well with what we've seen probably a thousand times across the series. Various lords and their spoiled children mistreating those they consider beneath them. So well on you, Rolly, I say. Although, despite him clearly getting away across the narrow sea, I'm really hoping his father or family didn't have to bear punishment in his place. It's also another great tie-in to the general theme of the Golden Company. Wronged back in the homeland, keen to go back and put things right. That's the hunger that they all share, that a lot of these characters share. Let's not forget that Laurent Caswell, this boy whose arms and ribs young Rolly broke, is the current Lord Caswell at Bitterbridge. We actually did meet him back in Clash in Catelyn's POV when we saw the melee that Brienne won. He is described there as a wispy young man, so Duck definitely has the opportunity to go back and repay his debt. Why Harry Strickland, who I think gets his first mention here, believed Duck to be the best candidate to become young Griff's master at arms is a mystery. Perhaps because he really is the best. Perhaps because he also has an easygoing attitude and they want to kind of shield young Griff from any who might harm him or try to use him. And then on top of that, we get the actual story of how Rolly was knighted and how he came up with the name Duckfield. It's another favourite and it's incredibly endearing. It really gets me on the side of this guy. As for his future, well, it's a little more certain than Howden's at least. Duck really is invested in young Griff and would do anything for him. When he's named as young Griff slash Aegon's Kingsguard, we get a bit of a continuation on the discussion we had about Howden and Jonkon wanting to move away from the River Crew. He wants the Kingsguard reserved for bigger names that can help them out politically, and also doesn't think that Duck is really worthy of the honour. Maybe that says a little bit about something of John Connison's own history back at court and his own issues, maybe not. But again, like with Howden, young Griff is reluctant to move away from the friends he's had for what seems like most of his life to him probably. He trusts Duck and he rolls with him. For all of Tyrion's luxuries back in the litter, he actually finds he prefers keeping it simple with these two out on the road. He even says, For a little while, Tyrion Lannister felt almost at peace. That certainly wasn't a phrase we were expecting to read of Dance Tyrion. Definitely not in the beginning. Anyway, that's really surprising to see him kind of finding that in a bliss. We focus on this little journey on the Valerian roads, with Tyrion again taking pleasure in correcting Haldon on the specifics of Lomas Longstrider's books about the wonders of the world. This sends Tyrion down memory lane as he, once again, remembers something that he once enjoyed as a child, but had ruined by Tywin Lannister. Surprise, surprise. This time, it was the impulse to follow in his uncle Jerian's footsteps and see the world. It's interesting that we're bringing up Jerian here, the famous favoured uncle, when we discussed him so much in Feast with his potential leavings in Bravos, specifically whether Tyrion would ever come across them, so it might be George is doing some more reminding here, but as ever, the main focus is on the Tywin-Tyrion relationship. You'd think Tywin might have been quite keen for Tyrion to leave Westeros. There's lots of places for him to go and die in the world, and then he'd be shot of him forever. But no, even that is not good enough. That's allowing Tyrion too much joy and not having him go out that way. And also, apparently that's not a dignified death for a Lannister. Tywin would rather keep Tyrion close and miserable, even if it makes Tywin miserable in return. Here's a quote from the man himself. No man is free. Only children and fools think elsewise. This is once again poignant timing, considering Tyrion's enslavement later on, but it also gives some really interesting insights into how Tywin saw the world. There's a real possibility he felt trapped by being the eldest son of a lord whose bannerman laughed at him. He was honour-bound to always do his best, which in turn only brought more responsibility. It was up to him to rule House Lannister, and then effectively the entire Seven Kingdoms after that. Perhaps there was something else he originally wanted, but felt he could never be free to pursue. Of course, feeling trapped, or that you must always do your duty, doesn't ever excuse the purely evil ways Tyrion chose to do it. 
Eddard Stark believes in duty too, but you don't see him doing anything like Tywin. John, you can argue, he feels very trapped by all his responsibilities, his lifelong commitment, but he's still not doing Tywin type things, is he? Nothing excuses any of Tywin's actions, but it's interesting to see how the man used to view himself. This is also where we're reminded that Tywin tried to shame Tyrion by giving him control of the drains and cisterns of Castle Rock, in which Tyrion fell into the old trap of, oh, okay, I'll show him, and ran them incredibly well, which sort of only proved Tywin's point. It's a bit of a catch-22 there. But Tyrion took pride in it, and that's all that mattered. Many of us like to focus on this point, as it could easily become important to refer back to if Tyrion is ever involved in an assault on Castle Rock. It's near impossible to attack the rock in a traditional manner, given its weird geography, so up through drains and cisterns might just be the way to do it. And if he's still aligned with Jorah or Danny, then they have some experience of doing a similar thing in the Marine. That little journey with the three of them is over now, and we come across our next destination, and again, we must say, Grohandroy, which I assume is how you pronounce this, we barely knew ye. This is another blink of the eye situation on Tyrion's continuing journey. He gives us some very brief information about the place because of course he knows all about this ruined city thousands of miles from where he was born and like before it's just a reminder of the power of dragons. It had been a fair place, green and flowering, a city of canals and fountains, until the war, until the dragons came. We've got to keep that theme constant in our heads as we power up Danny and uncover young Griff. This is world-changing stuff and the present of Grohandroy might well be the future of certain places we know well in Westeros once the dragons get loose there. Unfortunately, as they ride through these ruins, we have another instance of Tyrion trying to scare women, basically for the hell of it. It's on a much, much smaller scale than with Illyrio's slave. This time round, he makes a girl cry by making a face at her because she had the audacity to stare at him. He's always been stared at, it's always bothered him. He's had enough of it, so he goes back into this playing the monster they think I am thing. Clearly ignoring the fact that this is an innocent girl who has done him no wrong. It's small scale, but it's the same thinking. From small scale to large, as both Tyrion and us readers finally meet this character who might change everything. Here's the quote. Tyrion craned his head to one side and saw a boy standing on the roof of a low wooden building, waving a wide-brimmed straw hat. He was a lithe and well-made youth with a lanky build and a shock of dark blue hair. So like we spoke about earlier, this is a monumental meeting if we've ever seen one. It's a big, big introduction to the character who, while just a random teenager here, is going to massively warp the eventual plot of the series in one way or the other. Whatever his true background, whatever the truth is, young Griff seems destined to, at the very least, either attack or invade King's Landing in some way and have some kind of effect on Daenerys' lifelong goal of returning to Westeros. Whether he usurps it and beats a turret, whether he aids it, full on stops it, we don't know. But most of us guess he is going to end up as a rival to Daenerys when she comes, a possible false dragon, the mum's dragon, that's taken her rightful place. Because let's face it, that would fit into a lot of Daenerys' themes. Whether he gets a dragon of his own, whether he really is a fake, maybe he even makes an alliance with Danny and restores House Targaryen, or perhaps he's just a destructive force entirely and is just really in there to spark on the fire. Whatever it is, this is an incredibly important character that we've just met. We don't normally meet someone this gravitational, like Daenerys is, this late in the series. You'd think we'd have most of the main players set, but no, we're still meeting them. Euron might be the only other true comparison for big, big players being introduced this late into the game. We can have a large discussion about his role as the Mummer's Dragon and in the story as we go, but even with what he achieves in this book alone, which is sure to be dwarfed soon enough in wins, we have to recognise this is really a key moment, and it's probably important that it happens through Tyrion's eyes, considering the amount of influence he puts on the lad in such a short space of time, really. As for his physical description, it seems to match that earlier statue of Illyro back in Pentos. So we can either make connections about the family relationship there, or maybe Illyria was lying and he's had this statue made recently, we're not really sure. But what stands out more to me is Young Griff's wearing a wide-brimmed straw hat. 
Who else have we seen wearing a wide-brimmed straw hat? That's right, Egg from the Duncan Egg Tales. And what was Egg? He was an Aegon trying to hide that he was an Aegon. And how did he do that? By doing something with his hair. And Tyrion makes sure to note the shock of dark blue hair this young Griff has. So plenty of food for thought there, plenty of hints. We see how young and pure at heart this young Griff still is. He's standing on cabin roofs and shouting because his friends are back. It's wonderful to see, but also a stark contrast to the more focused, more serious young Griff we'll get at the end of the book. And Tyrion does play an important part in that transformation. Here we also meet the rest of the Shy Maid crew, even if they remain unnamed for now. The one that Tyrion identifies straight away, both in name and in terms of potential trouble, is Griff. This gruff, older gentleman who has made sure to have the same colour hair as his supposed son, even if Tyrion can already spot the mummery thanks to his reddish roots. He can also spot that Griff is not happy at Tyrion's appearance whatsoever. That makes sense. This boat crew is a carefully constructed squad put together for their ability to not only nurture young Griff, but absolutely keep him a secret. Adding in an unknown to the process seems incredibly risky, and turns out to be exactly that, as well as confusing. It's a shame we don't get to read this letter from Ilio, because we'd sure love to know if he included any exact reasons for Tyrion's inclusion, though it certainly doesn't seem so from Griff's reaction. During the reading, he starts adding up more clues. The fact that Griff can read is catching that he must be a knight from Duck's earlier story. In a moment, he'll use the same technique when he calls him a lord before making the frankly incredible leap to Griff actually being a Collington. He doesn't say as much just yet. Instead, he just cites the winged lions, the Collington sigil being Griffins, of course. You can see how he got there, considering the not particularly well-thought-out alias that Griff uses, but still, not many characters are going to figure this out this quickly. Well, this is all happening within minutes of meeting the man, so this really is, again, that Tyrion we know and love. He's peeking back out. He's coming back out through the booze and the nihilism, and his old self is surfacing. It will come back a little bit more, a little bit more, as we go through the book. Hopefully, even more on wins. So we have Griff pretending to be someone he's not. We have Tyrion, always so used to relying on his surname, now being Hugo Hill to the rest of the crew instead. As we've mentioned in the past, that's something completely new for him. And it's like with Quentin, Mummery is the name of the day. It's the same as those John chapters of someone presenting one face and actually having a different one. Everything is just lies and secrecy in this book. Later, we'll be wondering about the identity of Scepter Lamore as well, so if the whole boat is doing it, why not add one more? We know Young Griff is not Young Griff, but is he truly Aegon? At least all the others only have one layer of their fakery, and they know about it, which is pretty key. This guy might have two, and he might not even know. But that's skipping ahead a bit, because we first have Griff asking the same questions we did of why include Tyrion? Why would Daenerys want him? Tyrion has no idea either, and is more intent on going overboard with his hopeful revenge against the members of his family still living. Again, keeping in theme with Duck's story, and the Golden Companies, and the crew of this ship, as we see with Griff's I understand hate well enough. All fits together. But he does come up with some suggestions that might be true. He has information on how Cersei thinks, if you want to call it thinking. He knows how to defeat Jaime, apparently. He knows the lords, and he might even be able to deliver a few friends, although that one does seem rather hopeful on his part. Basically, he can be good intel, even better than Howden Halfmaester. Perhaps this is all Ilio saw in him as well, but it just seems like there is something more, something underlying that we don't know about. Though he's unhappy about it, perhaps Griff does see the value in what Tyrion suggests. Perhaps Ilio did include some unknown reason in that letter. So though he makes it clear that Tyrion is unimportant and expendable, he allows him to stay on, all in the name of serving this queen they're headed towards. So this is another important establishment. The story, if you want to call it that, of this all being an aid of Daenerys is present on the boat as well. We're sticking with what Ilio told us. We're still not on young Griff equals Aegon territory not yet. At least we're not saying it out loud. Tyrion brings up a valid point about what happens if they find out there's no dragons at all. 
And Griff likely frowns because of Tyrion's weird lion's jab, that's where this it gets included, but perhaps there's something more in the back of his mind that worries about that actually being a possibility. We know from his later chapters he was all in on getting to Danny and these dragons. He definitely did not want Jon Griff invading on his own, so yeah, probably is a worry. We end the chapter with this. This is no game we're playing for your amusement. Of course it is, thought Tyrion. The Game of Thrones. This is an important closing statement from Tyrion. It's not just his nod that you can see through all these games and aliases and knows what people are up to because he was playing this at the highest level back in King's Landing. It's the inclusion that it can be for his amusement. He got burned by the game before and his nihilism is still so high, it is still so out of sync with the world that he's truly going to view it as just a game, as a fancy that doesn't matter and tunnels only to the revenge of his family for him personally. We're going to see it in his multiple Savas games. We're going to see it of what he's going to say to young Griff. Basically, this is all just for a laugh. Why not? Doesn't matter, does it? So begins a new, all too short era of Tyrion's life. It's one he will actually enjoy and will play some role in bringing him back to himself. It's one he'll miss very much so when it's gone. We'll have to see if he ever gets that feeling back again. And before we leave, let me just say, let's spare a thought to first-timers because much of this is not evident yet. The mystery is still very, very much around for first-timers. We don't know who's going on, who's Griff, what does Tyrion mean, why does it matter, the winged lions, etc, etc. It's all very much mysterious, but we will get there, don't worry. And as rereaders, well, we get to enjoy it. So we'll leave Tyrion there for now. We'll see him again soon enough. That's our first third chapter of an arc let's switch that up and go with a first chapter let's start a new pov here yes it's that time i know we've been waiting for it let's get to davos one hey he's here our fan favorite returns to us after being kept away for so so long Sir Davos Seaworth has remained a warm staple in our hearts despite his absence. We still remember the father trying to do right by his sons, the loyal man who refused to let his king fall into darkness, and even when that failed, risked his king's wrath and blade by insisting on doing the right thing by freeing Edric Storm. Both the Clash and Storm arcs of Davos are superb, and some of those Storm chapters are rightly propped up as some of the strongest in the series, especially for discussions on loyalty, morality within politics and rule, means justifying the ends, and the superb dynamic between not just Davos and best buddy Stannis, but Melisandre as well. Those chapters felt very, very important even then, but considering the huge leap both Stannis and Melisandre take into the spotlight in this book, we can look back at Storm Davos with even more reverence now. And let's not forget, Stannis is only taking that huge leap forward specifically because of Davos's counsel. He was the one who pointed Stannis north, he was the one who changed the entire direction of the fate of the world, probably, not just in this book but going forward as well. In terms of monumental hinge moments that decide the direction of the story in the arcs, Davos doing that is right up there. So how many chapters has it actually been since we've seen him? Let's remind ourselves. So I went and checked, it is 71 chapters since our last Davos POV back in Storm. So quite a lot. Let's compare that to others. Well, it gets Davos the bronze medal. Silver goes to Bran at 74 chapters, as we saw last week. And next week in, in part four, we'll see the gold medal winner, obviously in Fionn, who has an incredible 140 chapters between POV. So I don't think he's going to be caught by anyone. You'll recall the last time we saw Davos 71 chapters ago, Stannis was drawing Lightbringer at the end of that chapter. We were left with a kind of soft cliffhanger. Davos might be about to meet his end. Again, not like that ever happens to Davos, is it? But this is a cliffhanger with a difference, because even though Stannis and his forces arrived at the wall, Davos didn't. We had to genuinely worry for a moment that Stannis had actually taken more than just fingers this time. But then we started getting more and more clues that Davos was alive and out on a secret mission. Then, on top of that, we started hearing his name down in King's Landing of all places, before finally being told 
he had been executed by Wyman Manderley. We covered this fake out and the emotional toll it took on us as big Davos fans in the prepper episode and during Feast as well, so I won't repeat myself here, but suffice to say, it's a pretty big deal to turn the page and find the name Davos staring back at you. Yes, hooray, hooray, our favourite smuggler, we get to see you again. Screw you, Cersei, and whatever you were telling us before. This is the lift we needed. It's been a dark book so far. Give us some Davos, please. Until we remember that note on chronology that George gave us at the beginning of this book. Hang on, this isn't such good news, is it? We're meeting him prior to his supposed death. We can't say screw you, Cersei, because we're not there yet. As we talked about again in that prepper episode, now we've got to wrestle with the idea we're going to have to read through an arc ending with Davos's death. <sighs> okay, back to the dark book thing then. No relief here. We're no stranger to beloved POVs being killed off by now but going into it knowing they will die at the end? No, that's something new, and it's a new toy for George to play with. Firstly, it's one of the best characters to do this with because he's so beloved, but you can see how well this works with the building of tension up to his sentencing in the Merman's Court. George makes sure to fool the reader in the exact fashion that Westeros itself is fooled, which of course makes Davos IV, his secret meeting with Wyman Manderley and that famous speech that we know is coming, all the more a beloved classic. It's completely exciting and obviously very, very welcomed by the reader that what we expect is not actually going to happen. That yes, we finally can say, screw you Cersei and what you told us, that's not true. But that is another three chapters away. Davos is another of the four chapter bunch, sent on his own little adventure of recruitment in a strange land. And his arc is a little strange as well. In four chapters, Davos really only has two things happen to him. The denial in the Merman's court, and then the true reveal beneath the wolf's den. Obviously, the importance is going to build as we go, like you'd expect in an arc, but Davos 1 and Davos 2 are a little harder to work out. Davos 2 makes sense, it gives us the establishment of White Harbour and how difficult this task will be, plus, like all Davos chapters, is absolutely littered with little hints about the wider goings-on in the Northern War, like his meeting of the doomed phrase or the spying of the warships. But what of today's chapter? Why is Davos 1 really included? Would it have been possible to forego this chapter completely and still have the danced Davos arc intact? Well, it certainly seems like it to me, off first glass and by memory, at least. So let's see if we can ascertain why George decided this had to be kept as we work our way through it. As it stands, the only real reason I can think of is the redrawing of attention to Ned's supposed meeting of Wyler, a former candidate to be Jon Snow's mother. We heard that name just twice in Eddard 2, like a million years ago, and then again a couple of times in I-8 of Storm of Swords when she's talking to Harwin. So it might just be George wants to keep this little note of information present in our minds. Or is he just bringing this up because the theme of fatherhood and John and where he comes from is going to be important in this book, so we need to start reigniting the mystery now, perhaps. Are there other, more political reasons to include this one? Or is it just an atmosphere, let's start Davos on the lowest rung yet again type of thing? Well, let's read through and see what we can find out. The storm theme starts straight away. There's lightning splitting the sky, lots of thunder. It's quite the scene setter, isn't it? Let's talk about the establishment of these bad storms. We've heard about them in Feast, and Sam showed us some himself, but they'll take even more precedence in Dance. This coming of winter, they say autumn storms, but they're probably going to get worse, aren't they? Even if it is far away in Tyrion and Victorian chapters, in terms of the sea, Stannis has his own problems on land, and Aya will also hear about some, and towards the end of Jon's arc, we'll hear about how truly terrible they are getting in terms of hard home, so lots and lots of storms to think about. The storms and drums are nothing new to Davos either. Storm's End had both, and Dragonstone wasn't exactly an island paradise, so yes, he's been through this before, he's been a smuggler for years, but still, this one seems to have really dealt him a bad hand. And I'll put this in here, just note that the words Night Lamp are capitalised, which is just odd, knowing the theory that might decide Stannis' fate 
is named the same thing, but we'll come back to that a little later. Just remind yourselves of that. Our worries about what this arc includes are validated straight away because guards are marching devil somewhere. His hands are bound. This is not a good start. We're instantly concerned. We don't really know the plan for Davos going to White Harbour, which we could easily be in for most first-time readers. We've never been there. We don't know these descriptions. These initial descriptions on the first page don't match yet. But we can probably guess this isn't part of it. He's probably not supposed to have his hands bound and be prodded in the back by guards. So how did he get here? What happened to Salador Sam? What's going on? All will be revealed, but the initial tension is set. Of course it is. This is George R. R. Martin we're talking about. We've got enough to worry about how Davos ends up. We really don't want to imagine that that's already coming, though. He's already in a bad spot. But just to take the pressure off a little bit, as Davos walks into this room with the guards, he takes his cloak off because you might be a prisoner, but you can be a polite prisoner. Yes, we've definitely missed this guy. He's also just taking this all in stride. If this were Tyrion or Jaime, we'd be getting snide in at italics, but Davos is just knowing where he is, how much is raining, and waiting patiently. Of course he is. Now he's doing all this in front of a lord that again, first-timers might assume is going to be Wyman Manderley. I mean, he is eating. But then Davos mentally mentions Sisterton, and we have to suddenly completely rearrange where we think we are, because this is definitely not what we would have originally guessed. Yes, it's Sisterton, another new place, and it's easy to forget that the Vale does actually feature in A Dance of Dragons. We've not been here before, you'd think it's unlikely we'll be here again, unless Sansa continues the model of following in her mother's footsteps by switching over to following her father's by re-entering the North the same way he did, as we'll find out at the end of this chapter. Davos was found in the belly of the whale, which we assume is an inn, but the name seems to fit for this room that we now find ourselves in, the one that George has really gone out of his way to coat in atmosphere. Davos is always on the back foot, that's his nature, to overcome unfair obstacles by being a good man. That's his mark, as is his undying loyalty, which, as within the past, is declared for him here at the beginning, with the seal of Stannis Baratheon being shown to this lord. As if Davos would have ever tried to claim otherwise anyway. He was soaked and sore and haggard, worn thin by grief and betrayal, and sick to the death of storms. Yes, that's our curiosity engaged. It's a very effective first page. We've got our sympathy for Davos as always. Why have these things happened to him? Why is he down low? Let's see if we can bring him back up. Before that though, the tension continues as the yet still unnamed Lord considers Stannis' seal, giving Davos yet more time to focus on the incoming storm and the possibility of a wet death below. Or maybe he's just going to be given to Cersei. So that boils our blood considering what we heard in Feast. The looks of this man matches the room we find Davos in. There is nothing friendly in the place or the man. Luckily, as he checks Davos' identity the usual way by taking off a glove and allows him to be cut free, we learn this is Godric Burrell, Lord of Sweet Sister, that holds the fate of the Onion Knight in his webbed hand. For all the earlier talk of Wyler, this is our very first mention of the name Burrell, and the same goes for Sisterton. We might not know anything of the place, but Davos does. He knows it's basically a Moss Eisley. It's horrible and dingy. So he's back on that bottom rung from once he came. A lot of Davos's arc has been about him kind of ascending, he gets made a knight, now he's a hand, he's going up and up, and now, beginning of dance, he's all the way back down. And in keeping with that, his handship is already being called into question, merely for being in such a place. You're not supposed to have a hand down here, so why would you be a hand? Classic. It's the same thing we saw in Storm with him being in the dungeons. So perhaps this is a reason why George includes this chapter, so we can see Davos progress again from horrible place to decent place, then back to dungeon again, and then off into adventure, with that handship being denied the entire way. It'd always be so much better to simply just deny his boss, but he won't now, as he never has before. Whether it's in a pit like this, or in the famed Merman's court, Davos will be Stannis Baratheon's man, no matter how much they tell him, he doesn't count. Godric Burrell wants to know how Davos got here, and so do we. Before launching into his tale, Davos gives this as a reason why he's here. A king's command and a friend's betrayal, Davos might have said. Instead, he answered, Storms. 
Yes, those mean old storms we mentioned a minute ago, they took an incredibly heavy toll on Salador Sands fleet. Much like the various fleets trying to get various places in this book, Salador Sands has been torn asunder. That speaks to the classic, well-made plans vibe we've got onto already in this book, because Salador, unfortunately, has fallen prey to the weather on the sea, Stannis is going to get the same treatment on land, so there's some nice duality there. I wonder if it's a payback for Melisandre buying their smooth journey up north with those blood-soaked winds. Davos certainly seems to think so. In Jon's first chapter, we spoke about how Stannis would have peaks and valleys, and despite being cosy and warm in Castle Black, he definitely starts in the depth politically, because Salador San has also made the choice to abandon him. He's stuck through bunches of other claimants coming for Stannis' throne, he's watched the burning on the Blackwater, he's even sailed up to the wall because he figured eventually, I am going to get paid. But every man has a limit. And even though Salador seems popular and in control of his men and his crew, you can't ask people to just continue running into a wall with no reward whatsoever. He's losing his investment and livelihood in these ships. Men are drowning, they're dying, and this is the best opportunity you will ever get to get away. Besides, your boss has just travelled hundreds of miles inland, away from you and with a monumental task if he wants to ever win this war. So when are you going to be needed again? More importantly, when are you going to be paid? The annoyance at these increased hardships with rewards that are still entirely theoretical is just too much for Salador, and the frustration comes through clear as a daisy. Bah, I say, bah to your patience and bah to your king. My men are hungry. They are wishing to fuck their wives again, to count their sons, to see the step zones and the pleasure gardens of Lys. Ice and storms and empty promises. These they are not wanting. The north is much too cold and getting colder. So it's time to cut the losses. Understandably. Salador is no kin to Stannis. Westeros isn't his homeland. He's not doing this for honour or glory. The situation is only going to get worse on the battlefield and in the sky, as he says. And he's never been paid. So I consider this decision a fair business practice. I don't think this is betrayal or anything of the sort. But what shines through is Salador San is still willing to give Davos a chance to stick with him. Before we get to that though, Godric interrupts Davos to decide what needs to be done and provides some more context for the surrounding situation. We get some information on how Sunderland, true rulers of the Three Sisters, and Davos gets a little update on Littlefinger and the Veil, vale, but the conversation is quickly brought back around to where Saldor San is. Davos keeps up a lie that his old friend is still acting on Stannis' orders. He's just going to keep up that front, keep up that lie, even if there is a time limit to such. Just buying any time at all for Stannis could make all the difference, so why not? Besides, he's on a mission to persuade people to join up. Admitting abandonment and desertion isn't a good way to go about that. Instead, we find that Salador not only gave Davos his best shot to reach this turn, but also tried his best to persuade his friend to just come with him and leave this ever-freezing war behind. The pair still care about each other, and that friendship we peaked in Storm is still going strong. It's a genuinely touching moment. We don't get people looking out for each other in this manner all that often. Yet what George uses it as is another example of Davos's unwavering loyalty. Davos has the same chance as Sandor here. If he ever wanted to get away, to leave war and death, and usually imprisonment for him, behind, now it's his chance. Heck, even if he just wanted a holiday, he can easily claim that Salador just refused to let him go and it took him ages to get back. Because, let's remember, Davos still has a wife and children back at home on Cape Wrath and we all, as a fandom, are always shouting at him, just go back and say hello, just for 10 minutes. This would be an excellent chance to do that. Unfortunately, he chooses not to, but at least he does give them a little more thought than usual later in this book when he pens a letter. But, yeah, still, come on, Davos. So yes, Davos is still loyal, even if it means not going back to his wife, having to say goodbye to a dear friend and being abandoned in a skivvy in a storm. That's just our Davos, though, isn't it? What better way to remind us who we're dealing with? He's 100% in on this mission, which makes us all the more annoyed that, publicly at least, it's going to be a failure and Stannis will never know of this loyalty. By the by, 
Cementing this as another instance of undying devotion to Stannis is going to be worth more because I believe a big part of Davos's eventual ending is that he will finally choose to do something not in Stannis's interest and perhaps pay for it. Specifically, I subscribe to that theory that Davos may be getting involved with saving some of the hard home lot or saving all of them or something, and I think he will choose to abandon slash leave Stannis to do it because he simply can't not help people. He's just too nice. Anyway, that's all theoretical. Back with Lord Burrell, Davos continues getting updates on what they missed out on while they're up at the wall. Not just Littlefinger replacing Lysa, but far more importantly, Tywin Lannister now being out of the picture. As Davos notes, that changes everything. He's just got a whole bunch of information that would be really, really valuable to Stannis all in one go, but he can't let his lord know. Now I figured it would be a while until Stannis also hears the news about Tywin, but in the next chapter, John mentions hearing the news of Tyrion murdering his father. Although it's never stated explicitly, you assume that John does pass the info on to Stannis, or Stannis hears himself. It's a shame we never get to see his reaction to it though. More than likely, for him, it's just further persuasion that he can now win the realm, and marching soon is a good idea, because if he can get the north over and done with, he's just got Tommen to deal with in his mind. We do have to wonder what the reaction would have been if Tywin had died before Stannis set sail for the north, if he was still on Dragonstone. You'd think that would mean Stannis assaults King's Landing again in the near future. He at least hangs around a lot longer, because the possibility of getting back in the game is now so much higher. Yeah, okay, maybe stuff is happening on the wall, but suddenly there's a great opportunity down here in the south. Sorry, they're going to have to look after themselves. He'd still be on much lower numbers than everyone else, but if he were to wait and watch Cersei do what she does with her opportunity, then like I say... I would assume another attempt on King's Landing, another large-scale attempt, comes very, very soon. He never comes north, never helps with the wall, and Cersei probably yet has another problem to deal with in terms of wildlings flooding into the north, because I think they would have won. And yes, she would surely place the responsibility on Reese Bolton's shoulders, but that won't last forever, so Stannis' opportunity, that window, grows ever wider. Burrell keeps up with the connections to other storylines as he starts talking about the Blackfires and being dragged into one side of a war or the other. We can connect that to what Tyrion has been musing on lately. I think we'll see plenty of similar conundrums when the Targaryens do truly turn up, the main point of including Godric Burrell and his own conundrum is that everyone is up to something here. In the aftermath of war, with plenty more still to come in certain places, lords are all looking at their own situation and seeing how they can best save themselves. And it's hard to argue with that logic, given the devastation that's happened to many families. Like we've said before, if it can happen to the Starks, it can probably happen to you. So that's some key thematics for what we'll see. Godric wants to hide things. Wyman wants to hide things. Everyone who later gathers in Winterfell has their own agenda of some sort. This is what Davos and many other characters are going to have to put up with. Wondering about motivations, allegiances, and always second-guessing. This is just the Game of Thrones being played in a concentrated manner in this chapter. Everybody wants to look after themselves. So if we're wondering about the point of this chapter, perhaps it is simply this, that Godric equals Wyman. Davos is learning how to play these lords and that they have their own wants. We're just learning the blueprint here. We also get some guest right talking when... Davos is finally allowed some food. That's an idea that's been built up to us very, very heavily in the previous two books, so you know we're going to pick up on it now. We can breathe happy, at least a little bit, even if we know Godric is still toying with the decision of what to do with this bedraggled man dropped into his lap. Do you use him to gain a step? Do you worry that his mere presence will drag you further into a war? Can you decide if there's a way you can gain plausible deniability on the whole thing? But Godric must be at least a little keen on Davos as a person and as a prospect, considering he's offering up his daughters for marriage. Davos casts his mind back to the burning of poor old Alistair Florent, his former cellmate. He doesn't go too far into gruesome details, thankfully, but he does remember the man had little dignity about him before the screaming started. That's a kind note from George, as Alistair was slightly lacking dignity down in the cells, so it's nice he found that bravery for his final audience. 
and it's also strong chapter sequencing because in the next chapter we'll see someone actually burn on page and we will be subject to the terrible details. The chapter pretty much goes forward in the same manner from here. It's just this conversation with mainly Godric talking at Davos, but he does get a few words in there. Either way, we can pick out some notes. For instance, he mentions being gifted by the storms. Things keep drifting up on their isles. And I will say something similar when certain ships are forced to seek out shelter at Bravos. Aside from that, we get some further history on the isle. The war between Stark and Arryn for these three islands way back in the past. Godric mentions they had to bow down to the Vale in order to beat the North, which can also be applied to the Northerners currently bowing to Stannis to get the Boltons out, or even Daenerys having to put up with various parties to try and secure Marine. There's a lot of themes of this book to be found in this fairly short chapter. Davos gets some more updating on the current political situations. Freys are now afoot as the Northern military presence returns to make good on their claim to the entire North. Godric assumes Wyman will be joining them as swearing allegiance, not just because of his need to prove the Mandalese as loyal Northmen, but because of the support coming up from the south to help Bruce with that claim, therefore making Davos's mission a failure before it even starts. So this is really just a reminder of the free phrase that we'll get a much better look at later on, but the mere mention of the surname always has us salivating, especially after Feast when we saw a few of them get their comeuppance, so now we're hoping we'll get to see the same with these ones, even if they don't mean as much to us now, they're not particularly famous phrase, are they? Having said that, bringing up the name Rhaegar in a book and chapter where we wonder on the parentage of Jon Snow is always pretty striking. The news of the phrase and of Wyman's decision is a huge hit for Davos. Stannis has lost Salador Sand's fleet, Davos has lost his best friend, and now Stannis has lost a key piece of the North, all because of this decision Davos wasn't even able to contend. He isn't even able to put his pitch forward, you've made a decision without knowing all the entrants. Hey, wait a minute, give me a chance. And there's several reasons for just how hard this is hitting Davos. The Mandalays are an incredibly important house on the political scene. Stannis would need it as a trading centre and an opening to the Narrow Sea if he does intend to rule the North at some point, or even to use it in this immediate war. And it would have been a huge boost to Stannis' savings as well, whereas now he'll have next to nothing. Still, Davos is not one for giving up no matter how bad the news, we know that about him. If there's any chance, any chance whatsoever, he can still get to the Mandalays and then still get them involved for Stannis, he's definitely going to take it. It doesn't matter what it's going to require from him, he will do it. All the while this is going off, Godric is still weighing up his options. Loyalty is a choice like never before. And again, he discusses what it feels like to be ruled over by certain people you didn't choose. It's again relating to the history of the Three Sisters. While he's on this little historical note, he also relates Stannis' personal history of the place. He came in many years ago and made Godric do justice, as he does like to do. It's good chapter sequencing again. We'll get another example of Stannis dispensing his justice wherever he goes in John Three. And this is where that night lamp thing comes up, because we see Stannis also specifically knew of the night lamp. So this is where he might think of in his memory to come up with his current night lamp plan at the end of the book. Godric, like the Northerners, wants to know what's in it for him to support Stannis. Because this is war, and like we said, every lord needs something to help improve or protect what they have. We can hardly blame him for being prudent here, can we? Everyone's in a rough spot. Davos knows this is going to be a common question. This is basically just a practice run-up for Wyman Mandley, should he get that far. So again, maybe that's the purpose of the chapter. But he's smart enough to realise these worrying lords don't need prittle-pattle about rightful kings and personalities or whatever Melisandre is preaching. What is in it for them? Put something on the table. Davos sees the situation and he answers. Stannis is strong in his military experience. The enemy, whom they still see as King's Landing, just lost their biggest military influence. Davos figures they have basically no one to replace him with, which is 
Astoundingly accurate as a guess, he doesn't even know the half about how bad it is in King's Landing. So there's a great chance at Godric getting in on the ground floor and receiving some extra benefits for what is, for Godric, really, an incredibly minimal risk. So that's a pretty good answer from Davos, I think you'll agree. And here, this is where we get the quick Eddard Stark story, how his rebellion and future was nearly ended before it began, because he found himself in a very similar situation to Davos. In the end, it was only hearing about Robert's success that saved him, and Eddard's own surprisingly forward assertion that they had a chance to win, and if they did, it would benefit them very well. If not, just keep quiet and no one loses. Zero risk. Again, very similar situations. Davos sees the opportunity to use the same excuse and he runs with it. And it seems to work. Again, mostly just as a setting for Wyman Mandley. That's essentially what he'll do later on. He'll even go a step forward in that case. If Stannis loses, Wyman is the man who killed his hand. So he'll get an even bigger boost. Vice versa, if he wins, of course. Hey, I'm the guy who saved your hand. Don't worry, Stannis, I've got him here stashed away. So it works both ways. What I will say about the Eddard story is did it actually make a difference to the Burrells? Ned did win, Robert did win, so they never got comeuppance from the Targaryens. Then the whole point is they would have claimed not to know anything, even if that did happen. We don't know if Ned ever sent some kind of recompense or reward for helping him out in this time of need, but maybe he did. Or maybe it just falls into what we said earlier about the history of the Three Sisters and the Burrells just sympathise with a bit of rebellion and throwing off those who claim to own you. So again, I'm going to say this is still slightly confusing in its purpose. It is an interesting story about Ned, it does make us wonder, but it seems quick, yet it is very atmospheric. Perhaps it all just was too much to fit into Davos 2 and you'd lose out on the Storm stuff as well. Really, the chapter is just usual course for Davos. You have to stay loyal to Stannis in all circumstances. You have to risk yourself a bit personally and this time he also learns a little bit about playing the game. Yes, technically it's left on a cliffhanger. We don't know that Godric accepts this proposal from Davos but we assume, because we're going to get more chapters from him, that it does work. Either way, it's the Davos that we missed for so long finally come back to us. And soon enough, He's going to basically do the exact same thing as in this chapter. He's going to come forward, he's going to stick a Stannis' man, ascertain that he will win the war, and go down with him if others don't agree. What can I do for you, Godric Burrell? Well, maybe I'll get you some rewards. What can I do for you, Wyman Mandley? Well, it turns out you can do a whole lot. A lot more than Davos even thinks. But we'll have to wait for that. That is coming a lot later. So yes, a bit of a confusing. I don't think it's fair to call that a classic chapter of dance but it has its merits either way nice short simple one there we'll move on to our next chapter of the day it's got a lot of connections to that chapter we've just read yes we're going back to the north we're going back to john with john three here we reach several key moments all at once if we thought janos was big earlier on well this is something else all in one chapter, we have the burning of Mance Raider, apparently. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We have the first group of wildlings to peacefully come through the wall, and kneel to Stannis, that really is huge. We have Bone Marsh registering his complaints for the first time. A lot of questions about who's in charge, and what is a very, very sad ending to the whole thing. Jon seemed to win Jon too a bit. He wins some of this, even if he doesn't know it, but the ending of this chapter is most definitely a loss. More than any other chapter so far, this is an examination of the cost of leadership to the sense of self. The tough decisions, the inches you have to give to keep people happy, and kings as well. The times you have to stand up and say no. The second guessing and constant defence. And again, at the end, we will see the true, horrible cost of the kill the boy idea. We ended the last John chapter with an execution. And it looks like we're starting this John chapter just the same. As we see Mance brought out for the first time since the battle beneath the wall. He's ever present, he's always being talked about. But this is the first time we've actually seen him on page for ages. And yet... 
That's our first caveat straight away, because re-readers know we aren't actually looking at Mance at all. We're looking at Rattleshirt. For all the fan theories of this person is this person, and this person really didn't die when we thought they had, this is one George actually delivers on and manages to completely hoodwink us with. There's very little indication there is anything amiss here, and the reveal we get later really does come out of left field. So like we said in Davos, a key part of this early dance and the book in general is people masking their allegiances or even their identity. We had that in the Tyrion chapter as well. Mance himself is going to do it later on at Winterfell. So it's a further saying of that theme that we as rereaders get to look back on with a bit of a chuckle. John thinks he's suffering a loss here after his win at the end of John 2 when he got rid of Janos Slynn. That seems to pale now though because he's also losing Mance. John's semi-friendliness or respect or whatever you want to call it in terms of his relationship with Mance aside, John believes he's losing an asset here on top of everything else. Someone who knows what the remnants of the wildlings are likely to do. The best possible candidate to be able to bring them to terms with the wildlings and prevent another attack while also getting the wildlings through the wall into safety and the best possible source of knowledge on the haunted forest and apparently the others as well. The road will never be easy but it might just be a bit easier with Mance on your side. Plus, the man was a hero of egrets for whatever that's worth. On top of all that, if he really is going to die, he's not being given to the Night's Watch to receive his proper death, as John just dealt to Janos Slynn, as Eddard Stark would have done to any traitor. That's how things are supposed to be. Whatever he became, Mance was a brother. His brothers should be allowed to deal with him. Hence, John initially thinking this. They could have let him keep his cloak, Jon Snow thought. The one the wildling woman patched with strips of crimson silk. Part of that is a question of dignity. Whatever his crimes, this was a man who achieved unimaginable success in uniting the wildlings and leading themselves. He says he's no king, but he's achieved more, far more, than most who wear a crown. So you could at least let him be warm in his final moments. Well, I mean, I guess he's going to be really, really warm in his actual final moments, but still. Leading him through with a horse is embarrassing and shameful enough. We also remember how key this cloak is to Mance's story. The cloaks in general are important to any member of the Night's Watch. They are the physical representation of what they signed up for. And this particular cloak is the symbol of why Mance decided to leave in the first place. So if this is the crime he's going to die for, then let's have the reason why on display as well. So yes, John thinks he's losing what we would call maybe an anti-friend, when in reality, he's actually got a great thing going in terms of getting rid of enemies. Janos first, Rauchert now. He just doesn't know. We don't know right now for first-timers, but looking back, this is actually a pretty nice start for John in some aspects anyway. Where it all falls down, as we were warned about in his conversation with Melisandre, is when John starts believing the enemies are all gone because those are the ones he knew as enemies. As these early themes of dance are proving, not everyone is as true as they'd have you believe. Daggers are in the dark, Jon Snow, let's not forget. John tried his best to convince Stannis, but whatever respect he might have gained by dealing with Janice Slint himself has not been enough. The law was plain, a deserter's life was forfeit. This isn't something new from Stannis, we know him well enough by now, but him reaffirming it here in this context might prove to be important later on. Something I don't see discussed very often is what happens if Stannis comes back to the wall and is confronted by John who was about to portray his O's before he got stabbed, or possibly has now left the watch because of this having already served a life ideas as some fans believe will let him out of his O's. Will these two semi-friendly colleagues end up as enemies regardless of what happens at Winterfell due to arguments over whether Jon is truly a deserter or not? Or will it be too late in the game by then for Stannis to have time to quibble? I assume that'll have to be a storyline at some point. Stannis having to forego his trademark justice in some major way because the others are just too close or something of that nature and he needs to kind of rest on his laurels for a second. Certainly, Melisandre is still citing the black and white view of the world she once discussed with Davos inside the Dragonstone dungeons. You're one or the other. 
Something that flies directly in the face of George's own narrative, his own lessons. At some point, we're sure to see both Melisandre and Stannis falter on this point. From here, we waste no time. It's straight into what is sure to be a difficult scene. We haven't actually seen that much people burning. A lot of Melisandre's worst exploits have happened off-page, but even those we have witnessed have been nowhere near so major a character. And it's not just the fact that Mance is important, he's also a symbol to an entire people. What happens to him has far more political ripples than almost anybody, so we're already thinking this could go very bad depending on his reaction. Which makes it odd when Jon notes that he's smiling until he actually sees where he's supposed to be going. This is where the rereader can step in and start picking up clues of Rattleshirt obviously reacting to the sight of the fire and catching on, which is why he starts denying that he's the king, etc, etc. Which unfortunately fits pretty well with the mance we know, so that's no real help to Rattleshirt right now. It's worth thinking about how brutal a portrayal this is by Melisandre as well. She is certainly not joking around or to be taken lightly. We already know that, but Jon and the others on the wall are yet to learn. We'll wait until Jon actually finds out about the details of that burning later on to discuss it, but it's worth bearing in mind, Mel has no problem completely lying her face off to achieve what she needs. And I will note here, there is some weirwood involved in the building of this cage that Rowshirt's about to be put in. I always like to note where the weirwood is involved, just in case Bran does learn how to look through it all. For now, we all think this is still Mance, which makes it hard to see him struggle and beg and have to be shoved into this thing. For Stannis, it could hardly work better as a tool to completely break the spirit of the Free Folk and cement his own authority. Again, what this man did was absolutely unimaginable. What he means to the wildlings is beyond measure, so to see their shining symbol go to his death in such a manner, especially when so much of wildling culture is about ferocity and facing death in a certain way, is really influential. It's no fun for us either. Until you become a rereader anyway, then it's quite good to see Rattleshirt get what he deserves. And it turns out Mance slash Rattleshirt is not alone atop this fire either. We also have this giant horn of Draman, which we discussed so much back in Storm. Yes, while we're busy destroying symbols of this wilding migration, we might as well do this one as well. Let's get it into the mind of everyone. Your grand adventure is over. You failed. Your leader is about to burn. Your magic weapon is about to burn. The wall lives on, and so does the authority of Stannis Baratheon and the Night's Watch in total. You have no choice but to abandon these ideas. That's what Mel and Stannis are essentially saying here. You must agree with us, the wall must remain, and you must help in our mission of saving the world, so get on board. Speaking of this Horn of Joramon, both in Feast and Storm, we discussed its viability and the fact we know this is not the real deal, it's just a stand-in. In classic fashion, it's the non-fantasy one you need to look for, the chipped one now thousands of miles south of Sam, and a bit too close to Euron for my liking. This one is just a fancy looking horn. So nothing at all about this fire is real, really. But as we'll see, that's very much what Melisandre is about. If the illusion serves the purpose, then get on with it. We'll have confirmation that the Horn of Jormund was never found, not by wildlings anyway, when Jon talks with Tormund when the majority of the wildlings pass. Jon's a bit too preoccupied at that point to think about the horn and wonder if the real one is still out there, or even remember what he himself dug up. Like we said before though, this is sure to be of some importance at some point. Back to the propaganda then, because that is what this is. Like back on Dragonstone, it's a performance. When Stannis burned his hand during that rubbish production of drawing Lightbringer from the fire, it worked. It got a lot of lords on board. Let's do the same now and pull double time by convincing these wildlings and these black crows as well. It's going to work. Stannis has established his dominance. The majority of wildlings have never seen anything so sophisticated as these ruins of Castle Black, let alone the organisation and power of a king. And as John notes, all were ragged and half-starved. Wildlings, the Seven Kingdoms called them. They named themselves the Free Folk. They look neither wild nor free, only hungry, frightened, numb. 
People are generally a lot quicker to accept new ideas when they are in these types of conditions. Now is a great time to present the idea of Azor Ahai and see how many people are willing to agree when you've also got a soup bowl in your hand. Mel does know her PR, we've got to give it to her. Proud as the wildlings are, this is going to be successful in at least some aspects. John takes a moment to compare these two teammates, Stannis and Melisandre, as well as their differences. He seems so colourless and cold, especially next to the beautiful Val. And note again, please, the colour blue being associated with Stannis' eyes as we've seen before, perhaps giving hints on what side he's eventually going to end up on. Then we have the opposite in Melisandre, all red and fire and power. She doesn't even need a crown to assert her authority. Assert it she does now, as she does a bit of show magic and makes the horn burst into flames all at once. Green and yellow fire, it says. Hmm. Well, yellow fire makes sense, but green, that's obviously meant to make the crowd believe some magic is involved here. Whereas we'll find out later, she just has special powders for each colour. It's always fun to me to imagine she uses just a drip of wildfire, although that's probably a bad idea. As expected, the wildlings feel this one deep. This was their backup. At one point, it seemed like they'd be able to defeat the wall the old-fashioned way and simply kill their way through it. But they always had the horn as backup, according to Mance. If they really needed to, this whole wall would come down and they'd be able to escape to safety. It was likely a huge bargaining chip in persuading all these different groups to journey south with him. And it's such an ultimate game changer, obviously. Even with the defeat by Stannis and being in blockades, etc. All they needed was one blow on that horn, apparently, to still bring down the wall and change everything. But now, as John says, that hope is gone. Interestingly, the runes on the horn seem to shimmer in the air as it burns. Now, our fandom has talked a lot about the possibility of runes actually having some real magical capability. So who knows, maybe this horn did have some kind of power, just not the one that was advertised. For all we know, it's another dragon binder, and we can all be glad this burnt, hurry. Rattleshirt is obviously seeing what's going on, knows it's about to be him, and loses it. Again, the specific words George uses make so much more sense after the fact. Treachery and witchery, that's what he's shouting about. You can pass by that easily enough when you think it's Mance, because a man about to be burned will shout anything, but later we'll learn specifically why these words are used. Melisandre does not mess around. Again, it really works in her and Stannis' favour. The man the wildlings all trusted to lead them and the one they uprooted their lives for has just denied them all. Rattleshirt would do that because he cares about Rattleshirt. I really think Mance would never say such a thing. John also gives a quick note on how this is a performance on his end too. He can't betray his true feelings over the nature of the killing and who he believes is about to be burnt. He has to dress up to his men. He has to dress up his people to give a certain impression to the wildlings. Optics is the name of the game now that he's a leader. He needs there to be an impression of the Night's Watch in order to keep these wildlings in line going forward. Look how strong we are. Look what strong friends we have. Don't mess around. From there, the description of what happens in the cage becomes incredibly uncomfortable, even with the knowledge it's Rattleshirt. It is truly, truly a cruel way to die, and it's very hard to condemn anyone to such. Instead of thinking on what Mance has done to deserve it or focus on these horrible images, John chooses to think back on something beautiful Mance gave to the world. His singing voice. Then he looks to Val and sees that wildling strength in her, the same that he saw in Egret. It makes him think, the women are the strong ones. How yes they are, John. And if it seems familiar that I say that, it's because I have before. This inner thought is the exact same as, of all people, Ares Oakheart. He had the same thought down in Dawn when thinking about Macella. He was right down there, John is correct up here. Unfortunately, that has him worrying about Gilly, about whether she and the others survived as those pesky storms raise their head again, and that's when John makes his move. I'll read it to you at length here. Jon Snow had seen enough. Now, he said, Ulmer of the Kingswood jammed his spear into the ground, unslung his bow, and slipped a black arrow from his quiver. Sweet Donald Hill threw back his hood to do the same. Garth Greyfeather and Bearded Ben knocked shafts, bent their bows, loosed. One arrow took Mance Raider in the chest, one in the gut, one in the throat. The fourth struck one of the cage's wooden bars, 
and quivered for an instant before catching fire. A woman's sob echoed off the wall as the wildling king slid bonelessly to the floor of his cage, reefed in fire. And now his watch is done, John murmured softly. Yes, this might be a display of authority from Stannis and Melisandre, but they aren't the only ones in charge here. This is John's castle, it's his soldiers, and Mance is his man. He brings it full circle, back to the cloak. It is for John to decide the manner of his death, and whether it be because of their respect for one another, because of tradition, or John believing that no one should have to die in this horrible manner, even if it's because he believes the wildlings and the memory of Egret deserve better, he dispenses justice on his own terms. So yes, it's good that John stood up for himself in John 1, Stannis appreciates that. Yes, it's good that he dealt with Janos Slint the way he did, Stannis likes that as well. But now John is going directly against this king's wishes, and the man is not happy anymore. But that's how bold John is, how dedicated to his position. This is a message to his own men as well. I might have to work with him, but I won't accept everything he says, this is still our watch. Now that's key for later on in the chapter, so just remember that theme there. Not that this is known to John, but imagine how much trouble he would have been in if Stannis believed this was for the purpose of King's blood again. He's fairly convinced of its uses by now, so if he'd been led to believe this burning was required for his own success, he might have come down a lot harder on John. Of course, Mel didn't tout it as such, knowing what she knows, so John escapes there. But it also reminds you, Melisandre didn't just lie to Rattleshirt, but to Stannis as well. At least that's what I thought. When I reread this chapter, that was what I was pretty sure of, but now that I think about it and having checked on the internet a little bit, Seems like there's a fairly common agreement that Stannis did know what was going on with Mance. Now, I haven't had time to research that further, so maybe some of you can fill me in. But yes, apparently there's the idea that Stannis was in on all of this. So yeah, I'll, I'll check back on that and I'll let you know. And you let me know what you think as well. For now, the performance must go on, despite John going off script. Mel sums up what we've been saying of, watch us destroy your symbols, but here's a new one, and presents Stannis. On cue, the light show begins as he draws Lightbringer. The sword glowed red and yellow and orange, alive with light. John had seen the show before, but not like this. Never before like this. Lightbringer was the sun made steel. Yes, the production budget has been raised a bit. Knowing this is a key moment, Melisandre has gone all out. It even has John wondering about Kingsbud, when we'll later find out it's because Melisandre is actually much more powerful near the wall. It's always very, very interesting, that part. Stannis makes his pitch and gives the order to open the gates and let these people choose. Jamie Lannister might have interest in this moment, as these O's are being made at a central sword point. John sums up what we've been saying best. If you would eat, come to me, John thought. If you would not freeze or starve, submit. It seems to be a comment on Stannis in general as a potential hero slash world saver. Yes, it's all very good. Yes, it technically ticks all the boxes. But there's just something missing. It rings hollow. There's no substance there. Still, for now, it gets the wild things moving. And the pitch is well written, to be fair. We've discussed a thousand times throughout this reread project what the point of a king is and what they're supposed to do. And Stannis does hit the nail on the head. He will protect you from danger. He will stop people from hurting you. He will provide you with all you need to live with some justice thrown in on top. It's a pretty good deal. This is the great agreement between nobility and the lower class they bear. This is what they're for. So it's a shame, not long after this, he rides off to fight in a war that doesn't involve these people at all. At least not yet. Anyway, it works. Slowly, at first, with a few individuals, until group thinking larger kicks in. It's a scene we'll see several variations of throughout Dance, Wildlings cautiously taking the first steps into a new world and a new agreement. A note that's easily forgettable is that each wildling is handed a piece of weirwood to toss into Melisandre's fire as they pass. The symbol of forsaking their past and their old gods and accepting the new present is another of Stannis' conditions. These are obviously important for Jon as well. He's allowing the burning of his father's gods, those he grew up with and respects, in order to get these people safe. It's just another thing he has to make peace with in order to keep everything moving. Like with Daenerys, we just gotta add it to the pile of begrudged concessions. 
and John's flexing his fingers so you know it doesn't sit right with him. The success rate is not 100%, some do run, a few kick up a fuss in the line. Those who run might well be coming back with torment anyway, but it's a very small amount regardless, the majority do follow through. As well as the general crowd, John picks out some of the specific names and leaders. There's Sigourn, the new Magnar Fen, who will receive his own mini-storyline later on. Hilariously, we see Rattleshirt come along, with John thinking about how much he hates him. There's the son of Alfin Crowkiller and the brother to harm a dog's head. All of them kneel, not realising Mance has been persuaded to do the same next to them, and they all go through. Yes, this gate gets a hell of a lot of use throughout this book. I really do hope someone is oiling the hinges. John has prepped the far side with food and clothes, although he actually gives the credit to Stannis. The wildlings will have places to sleep and fire to keep them warm. For some of them, it must seem a complete luxury considering where they've just come from. For many more, this will actually be life-saving. And yet, John does not know if that'll be enough. Fine, I'll burn your weirwood and eat your soup, but if a chance comes to take you down and avenge that burning you just made me watch, I might just take it. John fought in the battle for Castle Black. He commanded against the assault on the wall. He knows they've just put themselves in the exact same situation of having wildlings in front and behind, like before, if it all goes wrong. He knows they chose Mance because he let them choose, but they are choosing Stannis because of that pretty sword at their throat. Almost as if designed by a very clever writer with a love of wonderful hats, professional doubter Bowen Marsh just happens to sidle up and speak his mind on the proceedings, and you can probably guess his tone. So far in this book, Bowen has just been mentioned offhand, this is his first establishment for the incredibly major role he's going to play going forward and especially at the end. He had his moments in Storm, but I don't think any of us thought he was going to become as critical as he does. We'll have plenty of opportunity in a moment to discuss his role as the constant fall in John's side, but for now he keeps it fairly short and to the point. Mainly, he makes the understandable point that a lot of men have died to keep what is happening now from happening. So why did they bother giving their lives if this was the end result? It's understandable to be frustrated at such a waste of life, but hardly fair to heap it at John's feet. This is a management mistake that far predates him. Besides, it should also be noted that this is Stannis' thing here. He initiates wildlings coming through before John ever does. Then again, Stannis is a lot harder to stab. As the Fawn joins in with the doubting just to set up John's rivals, really, George is just establishing that discontent that will obviously grow and grow and not get dealt with until it all kicks off at the end. We all know that happiness is a mixed bag at Castle Black right now, so the tension remains. Meanwhile, John doubles down not just on his increased garrison's idea, but that he wants rangers used as much as possible to curtail another assault on the wall. The second of those ideas is going to become much more bloody and difficult as the book goes on. It takes all day, but it is done. The wildlings go through, almost all of them, with just a few giants too loyal to their mammoth to leave them behind, and a few other stragglers left to go back into the woods and spread the message of Stannis Baratheon. Again, some might return, some may well die in the woods. And don't think we're going to miss out on Stannis calling it his wall. Yeah, I'm sure John and the Night's Watch love that. John certainly notes his brothers, plus Val, refusing to join in Stannis' one realm, one god, one king chant. There might be more people on Castle Black than ever before, but it's certainly reached new levels of divisiveness as well. This is where Bowen Marsh does voice some more specific concerns, still quite politely, to be fair. It's actually the exact same query John just had about the wildlings sticking to oaths. As he will for the rest of the book, John tries to preach on the similarities between the two parties. He's been a member of both. He knows how they are all just humans in the end, with the same intricacies and leanings. Bowen Marsh is forever going to struggle to see them as anything but a category unto themselves. So he switches to citing the vows, especially the part about protecting the realm, and John has to bust out another much-used argument. A. Once they are here, they are technically part of the realm. If you are lumping the entire Seven Kingdoms together as one magical place where everyone deserves saving, you can include these people in there too. And B. Let's look at the bigger picture. 
It is the dead, the others we need to worry about. They are the true problem and we must not lose sight of that. So first off, applause to John for keeping this up as the real priority and what should be their main motivation instead of trying to ignore the issue. But Bowen is willing to sacrifice these people to the others, that's the thing. He doesn't care, he doesn't see them as people. Let them do their own fighting and we'll do ours, obviously ignoring the key point that any minus for the wildlings is a plus to the ranks of the dead and only makes their overall problem worse. Something John actually fails to point out here because Bowen moves on to the logistics of the wall. He argues the gate should be frozen shut so Mance's original attack plan cannot be repeated. Only climbing would be left to the wildlings, which Bowen figures would be easy to repel despite John thinking otherwise. This point can be easy to misremember because it's flipped in the show. There, John advocates for the freezing of the gate, although that's before Mance comes. Here it's the opposite. He's still set on this ranger idea and refuses to consider not doing it. Bowen Marsh, to his credit, cites the huge losses and damage Dual Mormont did with his own ranging. I've always loved that point and I always will, it's a stupid idea. He's not wrong about each death being critical and the need for conservation in that regard. But it's his blatant racism to the wildlings that really does hold him back. Other than that, he does make fairly good points. Either way, John makes a bit of an error after trying to put on his recent show of authority to his own men when he mistakenly takes a stab at it himself. Stannis promises land, food and justice to any wildlings who bend the knee. He will never permit us to seal the gates. And you can see why Burn Marsh kind of hesitates here. It's not a great look. The guy just called it his wall, now John is basically admitting he controls it. Thanks to his POV, we know what a hard place John is in here. He has to make concessions and cede a certain amount of control to Stannis, both as a thanks for saving their ass initially, but also because if Stannis really wants to, he can just take anything he wants. It's better to try and meet him maybe a little more than halfway than get nothing. This is what Burmarsh has to say. Lord Snow, I'm not one to bear tales, but there has been talk that you're becoming too, too friendly with Lord Stannis. Some even suggest that you are, uh, a rebel and a turncloak eye, and a bastard and a warg as well, John thought. Janos Slint might be gone, but his lies lingered. I know what they say. Now, in my opinion, John is a tad too defensive here. He's carrying the arguments and unfair accusations of Storm with him still, when I'm not sure Bowen was making that point at all. He was warning that John is getting too close to Stannis and it doesn't look great, which is at least half true. John explains his position and how few his options are, but Bowen then expands the field of their conversation to the national war instead and that Stannis might be doomed on the general playing board. I think he would have had better success if he'd just stuck to talking about the optics within Castle Black, but never mind. This is where we hear about the Tywin news and John spares a few seconds to think of the Tyrion who tried to help him out about a million years ago now apparently murdering his father. John and Bowen barter about who will support Stannis or the Iron Throne, but it's all just conjecture really. Rereaders know it's a non-starter. Stannis will never come into conflict with the Iron Throne, not truly, and hardly anyone down south spares a thought for what the Wall is doing. Cersei might make her a few wild claims because it fits her narrative anyway, but it doesn't come to anything. John finishes the conversation, promising Bowen he will think on what he said. Unfortunately, that seems like a bit of a platitude that goes unfulfilled. Forget the larger picture of the Seven Kingdoms stuff, but at least consider the optics thing. It's a shame Bowen doesn't get listened to here. Maybe if he had, he wouldn't go down the path he does, where he becomes more hateful, spiteful and uncaring to the wildlings until that big decision at the end. As John returns through the wall, we leave it to Dolora said to sum up what we've been saying about how tenuous this whole situation is, how hollow Stannis' deal is. He says, Not to say that the wildlings mean us harm. Aye, we hacked their gods apart and made them burn the pieces, but we gave them onion soup. What's a god compared to a nice bowl of onion soup? The next passage is one of the more genuinely hurtful in the series as we play again on the kill the boy theme of John 2. It starts with John letting himself be human for just a few seconds and wanting some human comfort and friendship. Sam or Eamon are his first choices, but no, he's killed the boy with them already and sent them away. Be recalls they were not the only friends he ever made at Castle Black. Hence comes the hurting. 
John finds his old crowd in the stone cellar where they're eating and having a laugh. It's Pip making the joke, as always. It's a scene we've witnessed as long as we've been within Castle Black. Countless times John has been part of it, laughing along with his friends, but not this time. John has to play the role of the teacher come to spoil the fun. He can take no part anymore. When he reprimands Pip for mocking the Red God, Toad makes the great point, well, hey, I'm only mocking, but they actually burn ours. But John really does go into full teacher mode when he talks of only brothers of the Night's Watch being his students or his concern. Let them be foolish, we hold ourselves to our highest standards. And you know that always seems very, very unfair coming from a teacher or parent or whatever. So Pip now builds on something we've seen irking before, even earlier in this book. The idea of Lord Snow. This man who was once their friend now only tells them off. He won't join in, he bosses them about, he seems to think he's better than they are. Of course, that's completely unfair with John. He didn't ask for any of this, he doesn't think he's better than them, but you can see where Pip and the others are coming from. They only want to be with their friend and laugh like the old times. Leave it to confirmed best character ever Gren to try and make a bridge. He doesn't involve himself in the arguments, just asks that John sits with them. That's it. And that's where the pain comes in. John wanted nothing more. No, he had to tell himself. Those days are gone. The realisation twisted in his belly like a knife. They had chosen him to rule. The war was his, and their lives were his as well. The Lord may love the men that he commands, he could hear his Lord Father saying, but he cannot be a friend to them. One day he may need to sit in judgement on them, or send them forth to die. Another day the Lord commander lied. Hey, yep. That one, that one gets us, definitely pain. It hits us all so deeply because this is all we want for John. He's already been through unimaginable hardships and he's got plenty more coming, unfortunately. Don't make your life worse than it has to be, John. Take what joys you can. We watched him make these friends, grow with them, laugh with them, fight beside them. Every man there is lucky to be alive. Don't waste it away now you've got it. But he can't because he wishes to protect them and make good on the votes that they cast. He has to be alone at the top, joyless and friendless, because that's what's best for them, he believes. It is the ultimate leader move. And let's just remember how old he is when he's making this decision. How many of us could do that? Basically zero. I will never let it be said on this aisle that Jon Snow is not an incredible leader. This decision obviously leaves him in a bit of a mood, and he shows it as he walks through the castle and happens to spy Val, first sending him thinking of the woman he lost in Egret and the woman he could have had in Val, a beautiful, fierce woman. He could have had Winterfell as well, but no, he chose this instead. He thinks this. Instead, he had chosen honour, a bastard sort of honour. John at least has the strength to think, the wall is mine, but it's clear he needs a buddy right about now. Hence the timely appearance of the one benefit left to him, good boy Ghost. But even that rubs wrong, as he tastes the blood of Ghost's kill, and he makes himself deny the powers and bonds between them. There's enough on his plate right now to be thinking on that. Which is a shame, because it would have been cool if he'd concentrated on that a bit more. John continues his tour by having a quick drink with old Clydus, who essentially has to serve as an aim and fill-in in more ways than one, as John sounds off his doubts about Lightbringer's heat. He's obviously been reading the Jade Compendium that Aemon left him, given this sudden knowledge he has on the history of Azor Ahai. He never definitively states that Stannis' cold swords is an issue or the whole story is fake or anything, but he's clearly left wondering, and George is again hammering that point home to us, as he has in previous books. Clytus also proves the truth of what we said at the beginning, that Queen's men are already spreading the story of Mance dying a coward. That's about all John gets from Clytus though, as he returns to the night, just him and Ghost alone. The loneliness is just as present in his own rooms as George switches writing technique slightly. Now come several short sentences in a row, all straightforward descriptions of John doing a task, hanging his coat on a peg, taking his gloves off. It's all meant to show us that this is a man at work getting on with a task that weighs heavy. Yes, it is certainly very weighty for us as John writes some letters. He sends Halder and Toad to the Shadow Tower, Gren and Pip to Eastwatch. Damn. Kill the boy is in full effect. 
the damp weight of the chapter is now just fully swamping us is an incredibly sad ending of duty over happiness responsibility over life i'm not sure i'll ever forgive john for taking gren away from us but i suppose there's a much better chance of seeing him again at eastwatch rather than the shadow tower and he was kind enough to keep pip and gren together so at least those at eastwatch will have plenty to laugh about John clearly struggles with this. It hurts him, even if it was his decision. The only upbeat is his classification of Ghost as more than a friend, as a part of John himself. That's nice. And it might turn out to be super true. It wins. Resigned, gloomy, John ends the chapter with this. This is my lot, he realised as he undressed. And now, till the end of my days. We knew this line was coming. We'd spoke about it previously. It is utterly damning. And really, again, it just hits us hard. This isn't temporary. This isn't a job he'll do for a while before doing something else. John, who again did not ask for this nomination on this job, is going to do this for the rest of his life. He'll never have a friend again. He'll never not be in charge. He'll never get relief from that weight of responsibility or being doubted or blamed or hated. This is it forever, this crushing darkness. This is what he dreamed as a child, not even as a signee for the Night's Watch. It's awful. And we'd be foolish to think this doesn't play into the end of the book and perhaps the John will meet and wins. Like with Danny, John will give and give and give all through this book while only getting more blame and stress back. The boil will bubble and rise and rise until he snaps and does something that he wants, finally, which is when the chaos breaks out. That is all linked to this moment. He's doing all the sacrificing, all the being alone, and it's got him nowhere. In wins, he may well look at it as what got him stabbed. So will he look back on this as a mistake and go the other way? Maybe he'll collect a little John pack of loyal friends, that should be cool. Or will he stay as this? Well, I hope not. It's a damn solemn note to close on, but it's effective. It's peak emotion from George here. It doesn't have to be fast-paced or action or a reveal. This is constant crushing tedium, a wave of loneliness, and let's face it, despair. And yet, John does not waver. He doesn't mope. Well, no more than usual, anyway. Through the rest of the book, he just gets on with the job. Why? Because thanks to the lessons of Eddard Stark and many others here at the Wall, John is one of the very best leaders we ever see in the series. And I do not think it's a surprise that next week we start with Danny. Yes, we're linking those two and their dual roles of responsibility and what it costs them. So perhaps some similar themes to be found next week. Of course, we can always make those links between John and Danny. But as you can see, we're going very, very heavy already in this third part of the book. Well, this third part of our reread anyway. So let's talk about next week because... Well, I'm sure you've heard by now, we're going big. It's five chapters next week. Yeah, big gulp. <laughs> you've seen how long these episodes are already with, well, just for three chapters in part one, but also for the last two with four chapters. So yeah, be prepared. Carve out some time if I were you. I ain't going to have to. As I just mentioned, we finally get back to Daenerys with Daenerys 2. It's been a little while. Unfortunately, things haven't changed much in Marine, and we get some extra questions with the return of Quaif. Like this week, we have another first chapter, new arc beginning. This time it's someone we've not seen for even longer. The longest. We have Reek next week, Fion 1. So you know that's going to be a lot to discuss about that whole arc, Fion's place within dance and the many, many heavy themes and symbolism that are linking back to Clash and everything. We're going to have to talk a lot about that. From there, we move to Bran 2, already two-thirds of the way through Bran's arc, unfortunately, and a very important chapter... I think that's a slight understatement as Bran reaches the cave and meets the free-eyed crow. Yes, indeed. On the slightly lighter side, we'll then have Tyrion 4. He's living his boat life. He's getting to know the crew of the Shy Maid. He's basically just figuring that kind of life out. He quite likes it, so that'll be interesting. We get a little bit of a better look at some of these characters. And then we'll be finishing back with someone we've had today. It's Davos again. Aren't we lucky? Back-to-back weeks with Davos. And he has reached White Harbour. So we get our first look at that city 
and quite a lot of updates on how this northern war is going to shape because so far in dance to be fair that plot thread really hasn't come through a little bit of stannis but not much we've got no idea how much that's just going to explode later in the book boltons versus stannis and everyone else involved as well so a lot to get to i think you'll find like i said good luck guessing who has the most airtime next week like i said earlier get involved let us know about your comics and what you're reading we always like to chit chat have a look at our patreon if you want to there's more there's more and more things going we're trying to make a real push in the moment. we've had some new people join so that's wonderful thank you thank you all for listening make sure you're always keeping up with valor readers on sundays i know you are and we will be back next time with part four thanks everybody see you then